0: Hi and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into Pixar in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? this is where you wanna be.
1: What is this?
0: Incredibles 2 has just come out. Um, it's been out for about two, a little more than, it's going to enter its third weekend as of recording this, but when you guys will listen to this it'll be far far later than that. And uh, so I already did an episode on Incredibles 2, but today uh, I have a friend that I brought on to the show with me to help me go through every feature-length film that Pixar has made and kind of... Not necessarily rate them, rank them, I mean, that's the order we'll be talking in, uh, about them in, but just kind of go through them and, and what we think of them and, and how they stack up against the rest of Pixar's uh, catalog. So, um, I have Jerry here with me. Hi there. Hi, how's it going?
2: It's going great. Great to chat with you today.
0: Yeah, it's great to get you on here. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, hopefully this will be worthwhile and, and enjoyable and fun and maybe even uh, reveal a few things that we hadn't expected to know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's always yeah. fun to talk about
2: Pixar. It's good
0: stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, so I guess before we really get into the movies themselves, what's what's your kind of overall thoughts on Pixar as a studio? You know, how did you... What's your history with them? You know, were you there when Toy Story came out or... Has this been something you've kind of come to over the years?
2: No, I would say I was definitely uh, into it from the beginning. Uh, yeah I remember when Toy Story first came out, and I had seen a couple of the Pixar like I guess short films they would be called now, but you know where they were doing proofs of concept. thought it was really cool, but you know it still felt like it had a way to go ways to go, and then all of a sudden. Toy Story came out and was amazing. The technology was amazing. The story was amazing. So I was kind of in, in from the beginning there. Um, yeah, you know, I can't say that I saw every movie right when it came out until I had kids, and then since then I've seen all of them pretty much opening day or opening weekend at the very
0: least. Nice. Yeah, uh, you're you're a fair bit older than I am, so I, I was only four <laughs> when the first Toy Story was released. I you know far far outside of my purview <laughs> at the time. <laughs> because uh, I think looking at I think A Bug's Life which was their second film uh, was the first one that I was really aware of and then I ended up going backwards to Toy Story just in time for Toy Story 2 to come out right. uh, which I think I don't, know, I mean uh, most of the people that I know uh, who are my age uh, kind of I think they end up citing Monsters Inc. as the big one for them uh, but I, I definitely remember A Bug's Life uh, being my sort of gateway into Pixar and and under, and, and appreciating it, as it were. Uh, yeah, yeah. So cool. So you you have kids. Um, uh, are your kids fans? They like it.
2: Uh, they are. Yeah. Uh, so they they were planning our trip to Incredibles two just as much as I was. Uh, <laughs> And we do see a fair number of movies together anyway, but, you know, Pixar's always, you know, one that I've taken them to since they were little, little.
0: Oh, good. Awesome. Uh, that's great. I can't wait to show my own kids these movies. I think so many of them are so great. Uh, it'll be a lot. It'll be a real treat for me to, to see <laughs> them react. Cause yeah, well,
2: with, with kids you got to temper your expectations. That, and, you know, for
0: Example: I just took them to see <laughs> Princess
2: Bride this last week, and they were so unimpressed oh, no. with one of the movies I loved as a kid. But
0: you know. oh man, that's, <laughs> hopefully that's Pixar films even better. Yeah, um, that's true. Because I, I, you know, I I'm 26, and the you know, most a lot of uh, I guess like the last seven or eight Pixar movies, I've been an adult when they've come out so you know i i have i never got the chance to experience inside out or coco from the eyes of a child and i you know that's a shame kind of i wish i had that experience to draw from yeah um all right so we're gonna we're gonna talk about these in reverse order of my personal rating of each movie uh and and start at the bottom and that means that our first movie we're going to talk about is Cars 3. We'll get it out of the way quickly. Uh, what, what do you feel? How's, how's your Cars 3 experience?
2: Well, like maybe even taking just a quick step back before we get started, even oh, when we sure, say sure. these are bad Pixar films, <laughs> I know like bad is a definitely a relative term here. So yes. you know disappointing or bad for Pixar <laughs> still means very watchable, very enjoyable. Uh, you know, particularly I think of some recent movies like Sherlock Gnomes or Nutty by Nature 2, the nut Job or <laughs> stuff like that that It's just so horrible in comparison that even Cars 3 is very solid. So uh, with that in mind, yeah, yeah, kind of jumping into Cars 3, uh, you know, it's an okay movie. It's serviceable. Um, You know, the best thing that I think it has going for it in terms of the Cars trilogy is that it gets back to racing. Uh, You know, it gets out of that whole spy thing that they tried to do in Cars 2 and gets back to what they were supposed to be doing in it. and uh, But at the same time, you know, it misses on even what some of the first Cars movies did in terms of building relationships. And, uh, you know, he does a little bit of that with uh, the Cruz Ramirez character. Um, but, you know, overall, it, it feels like it's more his ode to getting old or something like that than it is uh kids
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh i I agree with a lot of that i think watching it i i uh, i the the i always i felt like this was kind of you know it, it plays very similarly to the first movie with you know this time lightning McQueen stepping into the mentor role a little bit uh which isn't i think a decent idea for the film. And I definitely found myself attached to uh, the the new car more than like I ever felt attached to Lightning McQueen in the two movies before this. Um, I think she comes on very quickly and it becomes endearing uh, more than, you know, Mater did or anybody else like that. But right. because it's so similar to the first one, it does feel like they kind of didn't have a great idea for where to go in that sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, even
2: though the plot, there's just some odd things that happen. The whole demolition derby mm-hmm. thing seems out of place and just a, a way to slapdash some some humor and action in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think where it really misses out is the, the relationships with Sally and Mater, are still gone here or, you know, only kind of a surface alludes- allusion to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. We kind of take Lightning McQueen out of this sort of home he's been in and, and try to transplant him into a different world. And there's something to that, but it, it does feel like the strengths uh, in the series are kind of set aside in that respect.
2: Yep. Now, the one thing I will say going for it is it's got Nathan Fillion in a major role, so it's always a win,
0: but... <laughs> That's 100% true. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely appreciated Nathan Fillion's voice added to the roster for that one. Uh, and so Cars 3 came out last year. Uh, it We got three Cars movies in 11 years. So I think a lot of people talk about Cars being like this... M- not justifiably so like a a cash grab for Pixar in a sense but I think people like overestimate how quickly they put these movies out a little bit 11 years is not like a fast short period of time you know animated CGI animated uh, uh, films withstanding Uh, so I don't know I I think
2: yeah I mean it was enough time (laughs) that my youngest son had time to be into it for cars 2, And by the time cars three came out, he was totally done with cars. So oh, yeah, it was still, it was going after that next, you know, five years, younger generation of kids to, to buy some toy cars to play with.
0: Right. Uh, so that being said, uh, the next, <laughs> next movie up the list is cars 2. Uh, I have them rated pretty similarly on my spreadsheet, both in the low thirties, uh and it's i don't know like you could ask me on a different day and i might put two below three it's it's really kind of an, a coin flip at some times but my my biggest thing about cars 2 is from what i remember i only saw it the one time but but mm-hmm. i, I m- remember it's just kind of all about mater mater kind of takes the spotlight after being such a not like a great character in the first movie but the most recognizable face from the first movie and i was yeah. really disappointed in that decision
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean this is a case where mater was kind of the the seasoning and the interesting part of the original cars mm-hmm. and when you get a whole movie full of seasoning it just doesn't work
0: yeah and- i've i've heard uh, some i've heard people and like i would say a lot of people would compare that analogy to something like um, Pirates of the Caribbean focusing way more on Captain Jack Sparrow and kind of losing its luster for him in a way. Right. So I definitely agree with that.
2: So one thing I would say, this this one is solidly my bottom film. <laughs> <out of three. laughs> okay. And I might be you know a little biased because I saw it so many times when <laughs> uh, my son was of that age. But also just the, the whole trying to change this world that they developed fairly well in the first one and make it the whole spy game and add all this extra layer of complexity onto it Mm. uh it just it just never worked and um you know, I, even as I was trying to come up with some positives to it, that um, there just weren't many. I mean, and mostly it's the the good voice acting in a few spots, like John Turturro as Francesco Bernoulli uh, mm. was pretty great. You know, the right amount of smarmy and uh, you know, hateable for the role that he was playing. And then, uh, you know, I always like Bruce Campbell as well, so that was great. But totally, uh, you know, it's like. Uh, again, it kind of goes back to those relationships. They they built the uh, ones with Sally and Mater uh, in the beginning and basically within a few minutes Sally's out of Cars 2. You don't see her again really. And then uh, the whole rest of the movie is basically lightning ostracizing Mater and uh, not believing him in any of his little spycraft and all of that. So you, you lose like the one good part that Cars kind of had.
0: Yeah. Uh, and this kind of I've seen, you know, we kind of talked before this about all the Pixar shorts and whatnot. There are so many involving Mater. And they all kind of follow the same exact formula, which is Mater telling a story to all the other cars and Radiator Springs. None of them believe him. Smash cut to him theoretically doing the thing he just said he was doing. And uh, then we're left at the end with this sort of did he, didn't he actually do this thing kind of a question. And that's basically what this movie is, but in feature length version, you know, it's, it's Mater doing things that you would never expect him to be able to do and kind of backing his way into a lot of these interesting and otherwise, like, I don't know, fun situations, but lacking the like emotional connection they need.
2: Right. Yeah. And then the other part that always kind of bugged me about this film is you, you have the lemon cars, which are kind of ostensibly your bad guy. Maybe not the big bad, but you know the the henchmen bad guys along the way.
1: Mm.
2: And I never, you know, quite got the moral of the story, especially when you're looking at kids here. Of you know, if you're old or rundown or poor, then you're a bad guy. And <laughs> essentially, they're just trying to get parts for themselves so that they can keep living. <laughs> and and they're the the bad guys through all of this, and never really get redeemed for it. So, always a little odd.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting theme there. <laughs> Doesn't work that well. Um, yeah, so Cars two came out in two thousand and eleven. Uh, I was in college at the time, and it I, I can remember like having the conversation with um, I guess friends of mine, at you know, Toy Story three had come out the year before so like Pixar was on this big high at the time and then we got dumped Cars 2 in our laps and uh it was it was kind of Cars 2 kind of feels like the beginning of that slow period that Pixar experienced you know with uh and we'll we'll get to them in the future but not bad movies all of them but definitely a, a sort of um what am I thinking what phrase am I thinking um um um
2: yeah. They're, they're not hitting on
0: all their cylinders yeah they, you
2: expect some cleverness you expect some humor and you expect an emo- emotional connection that you don't see in other animated fare mm-hmm. and these ones you know they might hit mildly on one or two of those but definitely not hitting all three cylinders
0: right definitely so uh after cars 2 there's a big gap for me between that and the rest of the movies on here everything else is like well above a 60 for me all good to great amazing movies um starting with number my number 18 which is the good dinosaur and i've heard a lot of people who would put good dinosaur far lower than that they put it on the same tier as the car sequels and i think for me I haven't seen it since it came out, but for me, it's, it's far better, far, a little more, a little underrated, uh, with respect to (laughs) its, its relationship to the cars sequels personally. I don't know about you.
2: Yeah. So that, the phrase that came to mind when I was thinking about this movie is, uh, you know, the hate isn't the opposite of love. It's indifference. Mm. And this movie, I'm just so indifferent to it's, yeah, you know, the cards ones, the uh, 2 and 3 especially, I can kind of see some hate in there. Mm. Here, like I just don't care about it. I watched it, you know, I watched it in theater fully engaged and I've seen it many times uh, you know, in the house and I can't focus to watch all the way through anymore. It's just blah.
0: Yeah, it it doesn't I I can't even remember like You think of all these other movies, Toy Story and Inside Out, Incredibles, Finding Nemo, and just from the trailers alone, there was like this big hook that these movies had that was going to keep you interested. And I can't even now think of any big hook for the good dinosaur other than it's a dinosaur. And that's not really enough anymore. Um, Yeah, well,
2: even their their marketing campaign was all about uh, the idea that if dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct...
0: That's, then what right. Would have
2: that's right. And that's right. You know, I guess some of me is, you know, caught up in the reality of, well, would dinosaurs be exactly the same and humans have evolved exactly the same? Just mm. you know, on top of the <laughs> you know, social hierarchy or, um, I don't know. It just, it never quite sat. And so maybe that was more a fault of marketing than it was the actual movie, but didn't quite set it up correctly.
0: No. And, yeah it just kind of you watch it it's okay at best most of the time and at worst you don't really care about it like you kind of said and uh, it doesn't ever it never captures any of the hallmarks that we had come to expect from Pixar and that was kind of in that sort of Cars 2 to Cars 3 period where most of their films uh, were lackluster relative to many of their others
2: yeah, there were a, a couple of decent points here. You know, one they had that the firefly scene, which was pretty interesting visually. Um, you know, not something we had really even seen from them before, so that was at least a you know a standout moment within the film. And uh, they had the the idea of the humans as pests who were, you know, basically the rats of the dinosaur world. Uh, so a little feral human was kind of cute, but at the same time there was something kind of like that in the Crudes, which had come out just a couple years before that
0: mhm it also didn't help and i'm this i think is the one of if not the only year that had two pixar movies come out because you had inside out coming out that summer mm. and good dinosaur came out uh, around thanksgiving time so you know inside out probably the One movie in that span that really bucked the trend of the lackluster, for me at least. And so Good Dinosaur feels even lesser when you kind of compare it to that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the
2: things I I remember now as we're chatting is that Good Dinosaur had been on their lineup for many years before it finally came out. So, you know, when you're looking two or three years ahead, ahead, there was always a dinosaur movie in there. Mm-hmm. and um, it kept getting pushed out, kept getting pushed out. So obviously on the Pixar side, they had some problems with it. They didn't feel that it was up to you know, their their standards, I would suppose, and um, it almost feels like they're kind of like, well, we, we just got to either get this thing out there and it is what it is, or <laughs> we scrap it entirely, and you know, they put it out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah, so the Good Dinosaur it's it's there it exists <laughs> but no one's clamoring for it anymore or ever was perhaps uh which moves us to number 17 to finish out the cars trilogy with the original cars movie uh so this is uh came out in 2006 uh it was really you know it was before cars was like a product to be sold essentially, but it sparked the craze of it and of all the tr- of the trilogy, you know, easily my favorite, I think most people would consider it their favorite of the trilogy because it actually had there were definitely, you could see the threads of actual Pixar in it you know, it, is, it was coming out on the heels of The Incredibles uh, I say heels, but it was two years later um and so there was so much goodwill and and maybe that's kind of spilled over into this movie maybe you know rewatching it this many years later would change my opinion a little bit but i do have relatively positive memories of the movie
2: yeah i mean i think they did a
0: really good job of world
2: building here mm-hmm. you know this uh universe devoid of actual people and populated by cars and how they translated various cars into personalities. And, you know, particularly when you apply that to radiator springs and you get all the different personalities that, you know, really the voice acting matches the car that they picked for it. And you can, you can practically envision the human version of the character that's there. And, you know, some of that is just, you know, the voice actor. So, you know, you're, uh, Cheech Marin's, uh, or you know, your Larry yeah. Table guy for for sure, mm-hmm. uh, or even George Carlin. You know, you kind of put them in your mind, but you know, all the others, you can envision kind of what that person would be like. So, you know, I would say the voice casting was really solid in that first
0: one. Oh yeah, they they, you know, that's that's one of like the key parts of like these these movies is you've got to try to convince your audience that they're connecting with these animated characters and and some of these movies the characters aren't even anthropomorphic they're not human like they don't look anything like us you know looking at like finding nemo as an example
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh they're all just fish (laughs) you know it's tough to connect to those to, to things that aren't us like fish like cars and um having those really talented voice actors in there. uh does a lot of the heavy lifting in that respect um and you know i think perhaps overlooked and i think it's mostly because you know he's just serviceable in the sequels but i really do like owen wilson as lightning mcqueen i think at at least on the first movie he did a great job bringing a lot of energy to lightning mcqueen giving him that sort of false bravado really cocky attitude that for a while endears you to him, at least. You know. <laughs> but, yeah. know. Yeah,
2: and yeah. it really sets you up for where he has to travel within the movie in order to come to terms with, uh, you know, you got to slow down and mm-hmm. relationships are more important than, you know, maybe uh, rewards or, you know, <laughs> wins and races and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it sets it up well, and he does a good job of, you know, making that transition throughout the movie.
0: Mm-hmm definitely uh so yeah i i you know i was 15 when that came out when i was in high school i was not really interested in the movie personally you know i was kind of too old for it definitely and and not i probably waited and saw it on dvd even but yeah i don't know it's it's definitely easily you know a home run with kids in like the seven eight nine age range like they ate that crap up
2: okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah that and you
0: now kind of a side tangent you know now
2: in uh disney's california adventure they've got radiator springs land which is actually pretty cool like when you watch the movie and you can envision it and then you're physically in that same space it's actually pretty exciting you know even uh you know as a an adult i got a little a little uh Joy
0: out of that. Oh, good. Yeah, it's it's all over Disney now that they've acquired Pixar, and they make probably make more money off of the the merchandise than they did off like Cars Three at the box office at this point. Very so, pop Yeah. All right. Uh, Cars as my number seventeen moves us to number sixteen, uh, which is another sequel. Uh, another movie kind of in that down period uh for Pixar which is Monsters University uh the only prequel that Pixar has made um and it's 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 uh <laughs> i don't know it's yeah, tough it's, it's
2: another one of those of, <laughs> it exists you know yeah it's- it's definitely one that, you know, the easy criticism is it's the thing no one asked for. You know, no one right. wondered how Mike and Sully became friends or how they become scarers at, you know, the Scare Factory and all of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, at least, you know, it's got some humorous moments in it.
0: Yeah, I think the one moment that really stuck with me is is the the, the origin of Randall being squinty was just yeah. take off his glasses. <laughs> like, it's so simple and, and so brilliant, and my, I, that's I, that's my biggest takeaway from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Um, but I mean, it, it's not without its moments, definitely. And and I think I you know I like Monsters Inc. I think though that those characters and that world that they created in Monsters Inc. is is really interesting, and and something that I could have never come up with. And and the the approach to like monsters in the closet is so fascinating. Yeah, But I would have loved, personally, I would have loved to see a continuance of Monsters, Inc. rather than the origin of of where it all started for these two characters.
2: But I can see how that would be really challenging to do, especially how they left Monsters, Inc. True. Uh, Essentially, they're not scaring anymore, and, you know, there's this better understanding of how the two worlds interrelate. It's kind of like, yeah, I don't know where you take that from there. Do you have the monster suddenly living in our earth and vice versa?
0: <laughs> That's true. Um, they kind of wrapped up that whole story, I guess a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I think, I don't know. I've kept, I've felt that we've had that kind of an ending in a lot of, in in like the Toy Story movies every time. <laughs> and yep. those were Able to kind of pull it off, so the right team maybe could could take a crack at it. I think, yeah. but Monsters University definitely the easier direction to go if you wanted to continue to expand that universe and have inherent like conflict and tension. And uh, it, it it's it's enjoyable. I definitely feel like it's a lot more competent than like the Good Dinosaur was at least, at holding my attention and and keeping things fun.
2: Yeah, it it at least hits on the humor standpoint, you know, with Billy Crystal especially. You're always going to get some of that. Uh, And, you know, voice acting was pretty solid here. You got Nathan Fillion again, so a win there as well. But (laughs) um, also Helen Mirren as the dean, the the hard-ass dean who, you know, tries to kick him out and all that. That's pretty solid.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely, you know, Probably a comment we can usually say about all of these movies, just the voice acting they yeah. they really they're they're taking the the primo cuts of the voice acting world and outside the voice acting world uh even yeah, bringing up yeah, so monsters university uh right above that is another sequel continuance of a, of a world that for me. I also wasn't really asking for this movie either, but I remember when it was coming out, I was actually really excited to see it because Finding Nemo was, you know, a a very pivotal moment for me as a kid. And Finding Dory came out two years ago. Uh, It was, at the time, the biggest opening weekend of an animated film ever. Uh, I think the only animated film to ever break $100 million opening weekend without adjusting for inflation and it was just a monster uh, of, a, of a movie, but I wasn't. I've got a lot of problems with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of them are that I think a lot of the direction, uh, especially like a lot of the finale moments of the movie with the, the the car chase. I really don't like. But I think the the idea to take this this world that we've spent you know in finding nemo we spend the whole movie traveling through the ocean from uh wherever they start to sydney australia and in finding dory we go to an uh, uh not an aquarium but uh or is it an aquarium the it facility is. it is an aqua- yeah we go to an aquarium and that's pretty much where all the movie is spent so it's it's much more confined and that's not i don't know you have the whole ocean to play with but they don't use most of it or any of it which is frustrating.
2: Yeah, but even within the aquarium it gets a little confusing because you've got this whole supposedly interconnected pipe system that mm-hmm. you know gets everywhere from the whale tanks into like where the octopus is and and it's just a little more challenging to try to keep up with who is where and how they get from place to place. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the ocean they were going from one location to the other and hopefully a somewhat straight line.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah, and I think it's kind of the same way with, with Mater and Cars. Like, I love Ellen DeGeneres. I thought she, I think she's great as Dory. But I think focusing the movie about her kind of overuses the, the shtick that she kind of creates with that character. Not that she's a, a small part of Finding Nemo by any means. She's definitely a huge part of that movie, but the movie's not really about her that way. Yeah. And the one thing I
2: would say is that they tone it down a little bit, whereas Mater, they amp up for card two. <laughs> Dory, they, they amp down a little bit for uh, Finding Dory.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: that helps to make it a little bit easier to swallow in that sense. Yes. And, you know, I really like how they took their the main flaw of Dory in the first movie, you know, her whole memory lapse, uh, condition and turn that, you know, from a gag into like a relatable, but not really deprecating challenge that she has to deal with. Like it doesn't make her less. It just is something she has to deal with and helps you to relate to the challenges that she has. So that was pretty good. You know, especially when you're thinking in terms of a kid's movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I th- of what i can remember from the movies we've talked about so far this is the first movie up the list where i really feel like it hits hard on a, a very important issue for like kids to have an understanding of and to start a dialogue with them and that's enough that's definitely a big kind of thing that pixar does uh very very well with movies aimed at kids you know that address subjects and topics that you generally find in, in movies that are a little bit more mature and, and aimed at a much older audience and right. so dory's memory lapsing is certainly a, a no a, a, um, a worthy issue to to center your whole movie around yeah so i, I definitely respect it for that
2: Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch too. At the end, they bring back the fish from the tank of the first one and they're still in their little bubble from being transported or you know, when the the dentist, I guess, was trying to clean the tank, brings Mm -hmm. them back. I thought that was actually a pretty clever way of not losing those characters that you may have loved from the first one, but also not complicating this story by having too, too many characters in it.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, It's... It's good. Like they've they've done a great job, uh, even in Dory, uh, to to establish like all these characters in both of these movies that I think um, they don't have maybe a ton of screen time, uh, but they get they make su- they leave such a lasting impression. Like um, the sharks from the first movie, the the school teacher, the even all the, the the other kids that dare Nemo to go touch the boat. You know, they they leave such a lasting impression. And, you know, that's kind of maybe not as uh, well done in Dory, but definitely still evident there Yeah, by bringing them back for, for more small moments to keep them alive. Uh, finding Dory. Uh, next up, I mentioned it before, the first Pixar movie I think that I ever saw, which is A Bug's Life. Uh, so I had mentioned that this was the one that kind of got me into pixar so it is only my um 20, 14th best pixar movie which is re- fairly low given the 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 accolades i bestowed upon it but i it, so it came out either the same year or one year removed from ants if you remember ants yeah and i think that this is an unpopular opinion but i have always preferred ants to a bug's life Oh wow. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I think Bug's Life is really good. It's it's but I think for me when I think about a Bug's Life um it feels very clean if that makes any sense. I I don't know. I don't know how to let me see. It it's I think that the story and and what it's portraying is very straightforward. You know, it's it's kind of Motley Crew of bugs who band together to um, bring these ants out from under the feet of the grasshoppers, you know, uh, it's a yeah, it's
2: kind some, of a Seven Samurai Samurai-esque theme.
0: Yeah, yeah, a little bit of like a David Goliath uh, conflict going on, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I just I I think when I think of ants, I just I feel like it's a little bit more personable. In that way, but I haven't seen. I, I'm, it's been a long time since I've seen either movie, so yeah. they're probably due for a rewatch. But I do. I, I really enjoy A Bug's Life, and it as the second Pixar movie. You know, after Toy Story came out, there was a lot of a lot of pressure on it to succeed in the same way that the that, that Toy Story did, and for the most part, I think it's a it's a worthy worthy follow up in my opinion.
2: Yeah, no, I I think so for sure. And yeah, especially to, to be the one that came after toy story, which was so revolutionary at the time Mm. and to still be able to hit on a lot of the same notes. I mean, keeping in mind the quality of kids films at this time was still very poor. So this was like a second home run. Right. Uh, Now today it may not seem quite like that, but it was amazing back then. And, um, you know, I think they did a lot of, of good things to bring some humor. I think maybe, um, you know, your Ants comparison I find interesting because I think Ants was a little more maybe adult humor It had that whole Woody Allen-esque aspect to it. True. Um, whereas this was, you know, a little more about the kids. It had, you know, the circus actors of Bugs and, you know, a lot of poop jokes and things like that in there that, yeah. you know, to to kind of relate it back to them. Um yeah so you know i think it, it definitely has a lot more humor for me and i think that's what gives it the edge i really love the kevin spacey richard kind duo uh mm-hmm. you know the brothers who are complete <laughs> opposites um, you know i i think that really gave that whole bad guy like just that extra edge that extra grit in his uh step that you know made you hate him even more i think mm-hmm. i was really solid
0: yeah I, I forgot about richard kind i knew i had spacey's name in my head but mm-hmm. yeah that you say that and i i can totally remember and, and see like the interactions that they had and like this sort of silliness that they give to the villain character and his relationship with his brother that you don't really see a lot of uh you know it's not like that was the kind of sense it's uh You know, Scar and Mufasa didn't have that kind of relationship. Um, You know, so it was really interesting to see the villain be kind of like a little silly, a little playful in that way. Right.
2: And, you know, one of the things I love in this movie is just the shot at the end. And I think it's even at the beginning. They scope into this little island. Mm. And during the movie, you kind of get lost in all this action and things that are happening. And then back at the end, they they zoom back out, and you see that all of this takes place on this little inconsequential <laughs> island in the middle of a dry riverbed. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It just puts it all in scope for you.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great sort of. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of like, great themes in *A Bug's Life* to really pinpoint to compare to real life with, you know, corporate entities, you know, or or just you know, my my. Uh, my my history teacher in high school had a poster on his wall that was like of the universe and there was just an arrow pointing to what appears to be nothing that says you are here, you know, and that's kind of exactly the that last shot, what it's trying to say. Like it's a big deal for the people there, but outside of that, you know, it the, the ripple effects aren't that big, which okay. is an interesting sort of consequence oriented way to look at things.
2: Yeah, and conversely that one ant within the colony, in this case Flick, the the main one, mm-hmm. you know, he can have an impact and can make a change that's worthwhile. So, good message for kids there too.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Alright, a bug's life. Um, moving up from a bug's life is Brave. So Brave is basically Pixar's um, version of a Disney princess movie without being a musical. And, uh, it's, uh, a movie that I think, uh, it's, uh, I think it's like the, the year it came out, you know, we were at that point in this, you know, big heroes, uh, not big hero six, uh, Wreck-It Ralph, I think came out the same year and you know disney was kind of on a resurgence at that point and i think brave kind of felt in the same way that the good dinosaur kind of got overshadowed by inside out the year it came out brave definitely feels like a movie that got a little bit overshadowed by the the other studios besides pixar really starting to up their game with the how to train your dragons and wreck it ralph and such but i I really enjoy Brave, I think there's a lot to it, and I think it's it's comparing it to all the other the Cinderellas and and the tangleds and the Frozens. it does have its own sort of place in that realm that kind of sets it apart from the rest of those movies,
2: yeah, and definitely the thing that stands it apart from Disney though is that you've got a girl here who's actually taking care of herself and trying mm. to create her own destiny. Sometimes misguided, but you know, that's a good lesson too.
0: Right, and, right.
2: You know, she isn't the one who's going to wait for some prince to save her.
0: Yeah, you get that um, You get that archery scene that, that's so brilliantly animated uh, of her just stepping up and winning her own hand in marriage, basically, which is such a great, great idea for them yeah. to put in there. I, I, I'm I, for for all the maybe a couple of of times that the movie reaches and and doesn't quite hit the mark. I think the 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 intent behind it is is so well uh, well well done and well comes from a great place. I guess is what I mean.
2: Mm-hmm. I yeah yeah. And I I just remember when this one came out, like all the talk was about her hair. Because they actually did hair right, so up to that point, pretty much all the Pixar films and you know really uh, any other computer generated is kind of blocky hair. You know their hair didn't really move, and you know here, like Pixar tends to do, like they did in you know Water for Finding Nemo, they go to the the nth degree to prove that they can do it and give her red frizzy hair.
1: Yeah, but,
2: you know it's pretty awesome. Like this is the first you know one that it really felt like they looked like people to me, you know, not that they've crossed the uncanny Valley or anything, but you know, <laughs> now I know these are people. Right.
0: Yeah. I, cause I remember in like early, the mid two thousands when you had uh Shrek two and the Incredibles coming out and the scene with, um, uh, when, when Elastigirl and the two kids are, when they fall into the water after the plane and you can, their hair gets wet. It's, it looked great at the time but you look at it now and it's really not that well animated by today's standards whatsoever and the same thing with Shrek I think there's a Shrek 2 there's like a scene where it's raining and donkey's fur is all wet but it's super clumpy and not all that all that uh, not a lot of fibers that they put onto him to to achieve a great effect that way but brave man Merida's hair is just something else (laughs) Like they, 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 you know, they it wasn't enough to do like just like straight blonde. They went with <laughs> super curly orange hair, like and, and knocked it out of the park. Yep.
2: And then you know, kind of getting back to the the girl power theme here, it was also nice to see that the main relationship being focused on was the mother daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know that I can think of even now another movie that's really. The the primary focus is on that mother daughter relationship.
0: No, in a positive. Yeah, it's you know I'm trying to think. Definitely not within within Pixar's catalog. You know, you have Finding Nemo, which is father son. You have Coco, which is kind of family and son. Uh, hmm. But yeah, the sort of specifically mother daughter relationship was was a new one that they they kind of found along the way and and did well with it. Cool. So for me, uh, moving from Brave to the next movie, which is number 12 for me, uh, is the difference between movies rated in the 70s, movies rated in the 80s, which is generally where I draw my arbitrary everything. 80 plus is a quote-unquote great movie um, for whatever reason. So with that, uh, my number 12 is is up. And full disclosure, I used to rate up a lot higher than it is now. It used to be like in the low 90s for me. But I've listened to other people talk about it and and as incredible as the opening montage sequence really is, I do think that a lot of the stuff that takes place with like the talking dogs and, and, and that entire side plot is really... Not as strong, I think, as I I thought it was when I was younger. Hence the slightly lower score. I still think it's great, though. I I think that it's... You know, you don't see a lot of old people in animated movies, especially not in, like, the lead roles. And so it was really fascinating to, you know... You have um, the kid and the dog to kind of be our own... uh, To be the, the...
2: to be optimistic and yeah, humorous.
0: and to know. play against type uh, that the old guy is portraying <laughs> and for kids to have somebody connect to but I, I love I love seeing just a different type of hero in the movie, which is super fascinating
2: yeah well, I mean you already had on the opening scene is what everybody seems to remember it for and it is amazing and mm-hmm. you know definitely ramps that Pixar emotion up to max. Yeah. But then, you know, after that, there, there are some good relationships and connections, but it feels a little more forced. You know, the, that relationship, um, you know, in the, the beginning was just so real. You didn't even need words to understand what they were doing. And then after that, you know, it's you, you kind of had to give them some leeway that mm-hmm. these relationships would actually happen. But that said, you know that they do get there. You know by the end, you believe that you know Carl and Russell are friends, and that Carl would show up to Russell's badge pinning for the uh, you know scouts or whatever. Um, so you know it, it's definitely earned by the end of it.
0: Right? You know it, it kind of like paralleling, think, like, our feelings watching the relationship between Carl and Russell. You know, he kind of just forces himself into that the house he forces himself to go on this journey you know he's like a stowaway the whole time and he's constantly being told to go home and, and all that and uh but by the end of it you know he he's maybe it's just his persistence uh, but but you you do he does win you over and it, it's 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 a nice it's a nice relationship that they kind of established between the two characters
2: yeah and then I do like the kind of the timing of when they bring Doug the dog in mm-hmm. you know it's essentially at that point where Russell's starting to realize that Carl isn't that great, and you know he's as a character kind of needs to turn to where he isn't the optimistic bubbly kid anymore, but he wants to have some independence and have his way listened to. And right then is when you get Doug in, who then kind of takes that role of the always optimistic, positive character. And I just love that. You know, first off, they made it a golden retriever. I had golden retrievers as a kid, and that's oh, like nice, a perfect dog to just be this blissfully dumb but loyal companion. Mm. Um, you know, so that always played really well for me. And then, you know, you got the the meme of Squirrel that has <laughs> love it. I mean, it just like instantly took on in the culture and I don't think has ever really gone away. It's just become the way to talk about that type of situation. And, you know, especially, you know, I've got one kid who is constantly distracted by things and we use that all the time for him.
0: Yeah, I I, like I still do it walking down the street with my girlfriend. I'll just point and and call out every squirrel I see most of the time (laughs) if I notice it. And it's just it just it found its way into the lexicon and. You know, they 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 they've hit on something that that is sort of ingrained in us in that way. And I don't under I don't fully understand it, but it 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 works that it just works. Mm -hmm. Squirrel. And I I really do. I enjoy the the I, I I'm not a huge fan of like the human villain in the movie. But I do really enjoy all the interactions that the dogs have with each other. I think okay. that they they do such a great job of somehow putting into words what we recognize in dogs without that don't use words. And I, that seems like such a difficult thing to be able to pull off. And I thought that they did a fantastic job with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do find that the
0: villain, the human villain, a little
2: interesting in terms of you know, setting him up as such an idol Mm. And, and you know, tearing him down so completely, and you know, kind of, you know, again as a kids' movie, is that is that the moral of the story that you shouldn't put anybody quite so high up on the pedestal? I don't know that kids would read into it that much, but you know, it's
0: right. it's a tough uh, one. To my mind around. I I would even say that like they do a similar sort of. um I think they they use a similar sort of way of showing. uh um, Carl, the old guy, Carl, mm-hmm. like because Russell like kind of looks up to him at the beginning of the movie. And then, as you kind of said, it, eventually he gets this realization that Carl's really not the cat's meow the way he thinks he is. He's he's <laughs> got plenty of flaws. He He's grumpy and, and, you know, he's not just joking around when he's telling Russell to, like, get out of there. He really doesn't want him around most of that time. And so, like that's the other thing you know he he's idolizing this guy at the beginning of the movie, and by the end, he's appreciative of him, but definitely recognizes that there's there's far more going on there than just he he's he's a he's just an old guy who who's seen a lot of stuff kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: so one one piece too that was just visually stunning in this one well, a couple you know first that the house with all the balloons when it starts to take yeah. off and you just get this you know, Uh. incomprehensible amount of balloons and lifting it. And you know, is that house going to actually break off its foundation and all that? That was really exciting. And then as well, you know, just the setting of paradise falls where they end up going is, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty interesting, especially, again, back to the technology of, you know, being able to effectively show that in a jungle setting and, you know, make it feel real.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a, like, uh, All Pixar, as you kind of said before, like they always kind of step it up with every movie they put out in one way or another with the water and Finding Nemo, with the hair and Brave. And uh, it felt like, with Up, a lot of the big steps they were trying to take uh, was more of these sort of establishing shots. You know, we see the city as the house rises on the balloons, we see the falls on this big wide shot that they as the house kind of settles on that cliff. And, and it's, you know, that's, you know, you really don't see that in animated movies before then that often because it's got to be so, so difficult to, to put all those hours in for like a square inch of the screens on a, on a, in a theater even. It's, it's a lot of work for very, very little incremental gains. <laughs>
2: yeah, just wait till we get to Coco, right?
0: Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So up. Up, um, one of and maybe I should have been telling these as we went up, but Up is one of the best animated feature winners that Pixar has created uh, among and of the ones we've talked about. I think it's just Up and Brave, if I'm not mistaken. So far, uh, not sure. Yeah, uh, so which is another another a whole other side to Pixar that that they have absolutely dominated in the industry but yeah so that's up and uh we're hitting the halfway point now with number 11 which is monsters inc so the first monsters that came out back in 2001 um which uh is you know a lot of these pixar movies you know it's what if you know you know it's it's taking a very familiar relationship that we have, whether it's with toys um you know or or with superheroes, with music uh, and and this one is with monsters under the bed or in the closet and and really turning it completely around on itself and presenting it in a way that you could have never really expected to approach it from. and I think the the whole idea of of scares and and I guess ultimately fear in children being the lifeblood of this entire other world is really, really dark. That's terrifying <laughs> to think about. Like, that's real messed up. And, you know, but, but for these guys... Go- but for them, it's it's just just another day at the job, basically. And, and it's tough, I think, especially when you're an adult watching that movie, it's tough to, like, get your head around that at first. But as a kid... I remember watching it as a kid, and I just, I, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it in those terms. Like, that's not really where my mind was at. I was just like, oh, that all these, you know, from Randall to, to Sully and, and all these really fascinating array of, of monsters that all have different techniques and tools that they use to scare kids, you know, that's, that's kind of fun. That's interesting. And it's, it's, it's a, it's it's an immersive world from like the very beginning which is it's a wonderful way to present that i guess
2: yeah for sure and and you know really setting it up as its own world where these guys are just blue collar workers doing their job <laughs> and you know they have wives and dating and you know things like that that happen on the side that you know make them not that different from us but in a completely different way uh you know it's really fascinating to try to to learn as much as you can about that world during that movie. And, uh, you know, the one thing I always thought was a little kind of odd in that is you've got these guys who are heroes to the world in that, uh, you know, they're on, like, baseball cards, essentially. Monster Mm -hmm. trading cards, I think they call them. But yet they're, you know, just blue-collar guys just showing up to work with their lunch pail (laughs) and all that. So kind of a little interesting dichotomy there.
0: Yeah, that's... That you you mentioned that I remember that I I think it's 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 in it'd be interesting to kind of transplant that that same idea into the real world and like I couldn't even imagine what what it would look like to like work a nine to five and go in and and like people you know let's say you're working at a retail store and like shoppers at the store know who you are based on your
2: sales percentages but, or something yeah
0: yeah like that's <laughs> so such a fascinating idea that could never work in the real world. Like it would never get any traction, I don't think. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's I I had forgotten about that.
2: Yeah, and you know, you kind of mentioned in the uh early part of this that this was one that brought your generation in and you know it was the one that really hooked them. I mean I think even for me, this was the one that I was like, wow, they can do some really interesting things. And, you know, I put this up in probably one of my top three Pixar films because of just how unique and interesting and different and still visually stunning the things that they do, uh, you know, still technologically, the way they can get all the different textures on all the different types of monsters that are going through. You know, it really was amazing at the time that it came out and it's still one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, I it was, it was a huge hit, me and my, my cousin, um watched it all the time after we saw it the first time, and um, it was Monsters Inc and Shrek were like the two big animated movies for us at that age and and you know those you know those were the movies we'd be in the car together for like an hour and just like quoting the whole movie back and forth to each other <laughs> you know <laughs> to the chagrin of our our parental figures, yeah, but and, yeah.
2: And one of them I like too is just the, the moral of this one, you know that. You see people that you don't understand or don't know, and they're the monsters, and you get that on both sides. You know, Obviously, the monsters are monsters, but to the monsters, those scary kids who are going to poison them are the monsters.
0: <laughs> right, yeah.
2: And, you know, especially, and maybe even more poignant in today's world of, you know, the, the folks that we don't know are suddenly the enemy, and we've got to protect ourselves from them. Um, And, you know, they break it down and, you know, one of the most precious things there is this big scary monster who becomes kind of a soft, cuddly protector just because he meets this little girl and can empathize with her.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it shows how easy, well, not easy, but like, firstly, it shows like how difficult it can be to just break out of that mindset, but that if you're able to do that, how easy it can be to to just kind of connect with somebody on the other side of whatever line it is you've drawn for yourself or someone has drawn for you you know it's it's a lot of just kind of you you get this impression early on no matter like who you are that some other group it depends where you're from and who raised you and everything some other group is just bad eggs or, or a bunch of rotten apples and more often than not if you ever like extend your hand across that line you find that it's it's not that bad. You know, it's 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 actually really rewarding to make those steps. And Monsters Inc. is a fantastic uh, thematic display of of that ex- that kind of that that feeling. Yeah.
2: One other point that always stood out to me, and this one was just the the world building in terms of the doors. Like somebody mm. put a lot of thought into how that would all work, and. It's amazing, you know, especially when you get the scene where they're basically having a fight and trying to escape through this, you know, warehouse full of doors that are hanging there and how that goes from, you know, different parts of the world. And then they get back through a different door and they're in a different part of the, uh, you know, warehouse and, you know, how they'd have to turn them on and how they'd have to be powered. Just all of that. It works seamlessly, even though it's pretty complicated and not something we can relate to.
0: No, it's, it's like a magic trick kind of thing. And, and it's, they pull it off really well. And you don't, you don't feel when it's happening, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, you're not thinking that you're just like, Oh, yeah, of course, you, know, you go in one door, you come out a different door, you're in a different place, you're in a different situation. And, and then you just find another door and you go in that one. it, it, it even like just talking about it seems kind of silly but like just watching it is, is very straightforward and, and uncomplicated
2: and I'm not having to take a ton of work for somebody to do that
0: oh yeah oh definitely but
2: to make that scene so intuitive
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so big fan of Monsters Inc and and really thankful that it I mean I'm sure I would have found my way into Pixar one way or another but Definitely appreciative of getting to it as early as I, I did through Monsters, Inc. and and, and a Bug's Life 2. Which brings us to the top ten movies. And number ten is Ratatouille. Uh, Ratatouille is, you know, I, I would say maybe half of the Pixar movies focus on like humans, give or take. Uh, maybe a little more than half. And Ratat- Ratatouille is one of those that mixes humans with something else. In this case, a rat. And and I guess a lot of rats. And the, the the main conceit of the movie is the One of the main conceits of the movie is that... A rat can control a human with the right hair <laughs> pieces that it grabs. Which is... I, I guess maybe it's something that's strictly only usable in this one exact situation, but I don't like, it's not like they ever try to control any of the other humans and it doesn't work, I guess. No. So in kind theory, of like
2: you have to give them in order for the rest of the story to work, but yeah. <laughs> it, it's a hilarious conceit. So so it's easier to give them credit for that.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the juxtaposition of like a rat being like a, a culinary expert and, and, just a very high-end... Um, I, I don't know, like, you never think of a rat as something, someone that would be picky or that would want really well-made food. But, of course, like, who wouldn't want the best food available to them? And, obviously, rats don't really have the luxury to choose those things in, in the real world. Yeah. Uh, so that's... It, it plays with those expectations really well. And, yeah, it, it it's it comes out ultimately for me as this sort of like a i don't know i would even call it almost a fever dream in a way how it presents like the world of cooking and and this kid who's kind of thrust into the situation that he's totally unqualified for and how a rat just kind of puppeteers him <laughs> into success that way is is so fascinating yeah
2: yeah, you know, it's got you know great themes with the, the follow your dreams and anyone can cook and you know that the talent can come from unlikely places. So, so I love those. Uh, also, a big fan of Patton Oswalt and totally. For when this came out, I'm like, what? He's the lead? Like, yeah. <laughs> I never would have thought that would happen. And you know, he does a fantastic job. And I can't really imagine anybody else in that role. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. That, I-
2: I- yeah, you know, all the the gags, sight gags, particularly with rats in the kitchen. You know, when the family, when Remy's family comes into the kitchen and they're all getting cleaned in the dishwasher and going to their stations, and you know, they hijack the the food inspector and throw him in the walk-in freezer and all that. Yeah, you know. uh, some great sight gags within there.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of really one of the funnier movies uh, that Pixar had made at that time. You know, I'm for me, you know, I'm I'm a very, very picky food eater. Uh, You know, I don't know. There probably isn't even anything that they make in Ratatouille that I would be comfortable eating. But but it's still there's there's one moment that kind of I feel like really boils to the central like. uh, Conflict between Remy and the rest of the rats, which is. Uh, I think his it's his brother who just kind of like puts a piece of something he got in the garbage in his mouth. And and it, Remy's like, did you know what that was? And he's like, no. And he's like, you don't know what it was, and you're eating it. And it's just like, it's just so straightforward, so obvious, but it, it represents the whole thing. Like, it's this one rat who can't fathom digging through the garbage to find some mass of edible thing and and assuming that that's actually worth eating and and realizing like no we're better than this <laughs> like we're, we're so much better than this we shouldn't have to do this and it's, it's just I, I love that that aspect of it so much
2: well and it doesn't some of that though come with the, the expertise that he has and the passion that he has so you know kind of putting that back towards you I would imagine that there are <laughs> A lot of blockbuster, big money-making movies that come out that you're just like, no, what, why are you eating? Why are you consuming that? That's just crap. Like, there's so much good
0: stuff out there. 100. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, that's definitely a fair, fair comparison. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I love one of the things I really enjoy about Ratatouille uh, what it what it does for the human characters. I think. Um, in the way that I, I kind of harp, uh, talked about Finding Nemo having so many great smaller roles, I think fi- Ratatouille has the same. Like everyone in that sh- in that kitchen is is so distinguishable. Um, the, the the one I forget what his specific role is, but the guy who like supposedly killed somebody with his thumb, you know, uh, <laughs> he gets like two maybe three moments in the in the movie that he's shone a light on, and he just all the characters make the best use out of what little amount of time they're given, and I, you know, even and and of course have to mention um, the great Peter O'Toole lending his voice to this movie, which I I'm surprised, you know, as someone who had been in the industry for that long, you know, I wouldn't have pegged him as the kind of person who would want to be a voice actor or or even you know be part of an animated movie that way.
2: Yeah, well kind of like Ed Asner from Up, you know, you don't sure, quite think Sure sure. Uh, speaking of the guy who can kill with his thumb, that was actually Will Arnett in one of his first animated Oh, there you go. Yeah, you wouldn't, wouldn't know that especially with the millions of animated movies <laughs> made since then, but
0: Right. There you go. Will Arnett. <laughs> it all it alls coming together. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, that's Ratatouille. Number 10, moving to number 9, we hit uh, Incredibles 2, which just came out a couple of weekends ago and knocked out Finding Dory as the biggest opening weekend for an animated film ever, and it wasn't even close. (laughs) It just demolished Dory by almost $50 million. And of all the movies that Pixar has made... Incredibles is easily the only one that lends itself to being a sequel. It even has like a stinger towards the end of the film with the underminer that basically says there will be a sequel, and then it took us 14 years to get Incredibles 2 to come out.
2: And, and you got you got to think it was worthwhile. And you know, I read that Brad Bird had you know probably it was like four or five times that many scripts that came across his desk that. <sighs> didn't work out and he was waiting for the right one and you know i gotta say this this is pretty solid i can't imagine that it would get much better
0: yeah it's you know it's not quite up there obviously but definitely Mm -hmm. worth mentioning in the same breath as the toy story sequels uh for how well they are able to continue the story and and really stay true to the characters that they established in the original movie Mm uh you know it's it's in In a very simple way it 's kind of just a a mirrored version of the first movie with a different parent being the one to kind of go off on their own and a different parent being left behind to look after the kids and yet something that simple is for me really, really effective at at just fleshing these characters out a little bit more and putting them into situations that we hadn 't seen them in yet, all toward uh, the ultimate goal. Of the two movies, when you combine them, of being able to be superheroes without that being an illegal state. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating that they were able to make Incredibles two literally pick up from the end of Incredibles one, and fourteen years passed, and it and it it just flows so smoothly.
2: Yeah, it was a great choice to start with the underminer. You know, it's just kind of a quick little diversion that gets into their you know, central theme again of the the destruction and starts that whole conflict over again. Mm-hmm. But you know, definitely as an audience member, especially if you went back and watched the movie, like I'm sure a lot of us did, you know, it gets you right back into the middle of it. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me as a little odd in this one was just the whole gender dynamic. So you talk about how they switch roles Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and I don't know, I guess it felt kind of like the jokes that you might get 20 years ago about how, Oh, dad's going to stay home and watch the kids. And Oh, he has to figure out how to do math homework and, you know, how to take care of the baby. And, you know, obviously it's all amped up, you know, especially with Jack Jack not being your ordinary baby. But, um, and then, you know, the flip side where, It almost seems like in that one scene that uh, uh, Helen or Elastigirl is almost willing to give up her chance to be the forefront of this movement because she's worried that, you know, Bob back at home might not be taking care of the kids well enough. And I don't know, it just felt a little dated in that sense. But it's also kind of hard to place because you've got this retro futuristic land where it's, you know, some stuff looks like it's the 50s, some stuff looks like it's, you know, 10, 20 years from now. <laughs> when you get to everyday life, it kind of looks like now. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of hard to place that gender dynamic change.
0: Yeah, they, they it's, you're right. I, I There's definitely something to be said for just putting Mr. Incredible in, like, a Mr. Mom sort of plot for most of the movie. And uh, you can tell, you know, when you watch the first one again, you really get this sense that, uh, you know, he's been a superhero for, I don't know, 20-some years of his life, and then from that point until we start Incredibles 1 proper, he's basically been doing this pencil-pushing desk job at uh, InsuraCare. And so we don't know necessarily that he's ever like had to kind of stay at home and like look after the kids. Uh, it's never been, you know, we didn't, I never saw it, you know, the few times he interacts with the kids in the first movie, he just kind of defaults to whatever Helen says (laughs) almost. Uh, but it was for, for whatever, maybe faults that that line of, of that direction is, uh, as far as the the gender politics of today, with regards to the situation, I think it does it does a much better job of that portrayal than I think you know some you know throwaway comedy would have done. You know, it, it's maybe not as um, it's maybe not as like revolutionary is not the right word, but like that's kind of what I'm looking into, trying to say with something like Mrs. Doubtfire. You know. It's like which is the difference being that Mrs. Doubtfire is all about that dynamic, whereas this is, depending on your viewpoint, the B plot of this movie. Right. You know, it's it's far more about Elastigirl and and her uh, her her own plot of of trying to make supers legal and and it's easy to forget how difficult it can be back at home and and at least we get to see that because in the first movie, you know, we never saw any difficulties from from Elastigirl back at home. You know, she had everything under control while she was there.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that kind of leads to, you know, the best part of the movie is when, uh, you know, Mr. Incredible does finally pass out and Jack Jack gets (sighs) control. And the the whole uh, raccoon sequence is just just priceless. And yeah, actually, uh, in uh, looking back, I realized that the raccoon is actually on the poster, which I never noticed. He's kind of off in the corner in a dark area. Like mm-hmm. Jack, Jack firing his laser eyes at the raccoon, and still, like you know, not having seen that, it was just you know surprising and funny, and uh, you know, just well choreographed and interesting
0: yeah it's like you know having you know without any knowledge of the movie the idea of a baby fighting a raccoon being the best action part of this movie is ludicrous like (laughs) you know like pixar is good but come on like could they really pull that (laughs) off and insane insanely they they do it's like Mm -hmm. like it's builds very slowly but then every couple seconds later, you're like, are they really going to keep going? Like these guys are beating the crap out of each other. You know, <laughs> like this isn't just like the baby, like punching the raccoon a couple of times, like everything's on fire. <laughs> like he turns into goo. He, you know, it's all, all, all the powers are are at his disposal and credit to that raccoon though, for, for oh. even not, not running away. Uh, the couple of chances he has, <laughs> <laughs> you know he, he he's in it for the long haul, and and that's, that's he wants admirable. that
2: chicken drumstick that must have been good stuff there. Definitely,
0: <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely.
2: You know, a couple of other parts I liked. Uh, you know, first Edna, you know, great from the first movie, could mm-hmm. have been one of those cases where they bring him back, bring Edna back, and overuse her as a character, and they they definitely don't. It's just that right amount stays true to the character that she established in the first. Has some humor, but you know isn't uh, main focus of it. Yeah, and uh, you know as far as the new characters, there were a lot, maybe a few too many of the the new supers that were coming in, but I really liked Void. Uh, Love Void. Yeah, just the fangirling on the last girl, and then I mean, even just her power is amazing. Like trying to mentally think where you're going to set up these portals to accomplish what you're trying to do, you got to be a, a pretty amazing, quick thinker to be able to accomplish that.
0: Yeah, it's you know I, I you know I've been thinking about that. You know, definitely void is my favorite of the new characters that they introduced in this movie, and you know there's you get this really interesting. Different distinction between one of the f- earlier action pieces that she she's involved in. You know, she it, she's pretty flawless with the position of her portals. You know, having Elastigirl punch herself when she's throwing a punch at Void or dash in this brilliant like shot of him like running through an infinite loop of <laughs> uh within the house, which I loved. But then later in the movie, there's a sequence involving Elastigirl that takes like three or four attempts to get it right and i I loved that it showed that difficulty and like yeah you gotta not you've you've gotta plan for like the speed that the person's going through the portal and and where the thing you're trying to put the person with the portal onto how that's fast how fast is that moving and how fast she's moving relative relative to everything else like it's a lot of like physics and and angles to to really worry about that you wouldn't necessarily think about on first instinct of seeing what her powers can do.
2: Yep. And then on the flip side, I thought that the villain was just a little weak here. Um, you know, I like, mm-hmm. you know, not to, that uh, the work that Catherine Keener does is great, but the motivations I never quite got behind is that she blamed the supers for her parents' death, I guess, and just quietly sat around her brother who loved them and, and, plotted this whole thing uh, it seemed a little far-fetched and then the the whole screens you know ruining society type thing was a little on the nose but
0: yeah i i've heard i heard some great critiques about that entire thing which was one given like you kind of mentioned before the very difficult to pin like decade that this movie is taking whether it's 50 years ago 10 years from now there's no cell phones like <laughs> this. Is, like the screens that the screenslaver is uh, admonishing for for controlling us are like window shopping screens from what we see. Uh, you know, it's not like this movie takes place in present and like everybody's looking down at their cell phones, which would be fantastic commentary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But involving um, uh, Catherine Keener, Evelyn, you know, she is. I I felt when when the she kind of feels like she's using she has she feels like she's coming from a very different place than Screenslaver was and as soon as that difference happens like it feels like everything that Screenslaver stood for was just kind of a smokescreen and you know we completely dropped that thread almost which yep. was frustrating Yep Yeah Um also I I don't know I didn't realize this until I heard somebody else comment about it. But her name, Evil Endeavor. Do you hear it? Yeah. It's it's. Endeavor. Yeah, Evil Endeavor. Evil Endeavor. Yeah. Um, I I'm surprised. You know, it's 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 I don't know. It's not super obvious, I guess, but yeah. definitely something you think about afterwards. And you're like, oh, duh. Yeah kind of thing
2: and it makes you wonder if they ever actually put those two names together in the movie you know maybe just talk about the brother winston Dever and her and sister evelyn
0: right right so
2: they put the whole name together
0: mm-hmm. definitely
2: they have to but... Watch that.
0: <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm i really enjoyed incredibles too i had high hopes and uh they were met fairly fairly well with the film and uh i'm i'm hopeful i guess for a third film because we still like the underminer hasn't been taken care of (laughs) you know it's had two movie two appearances and two movies and he's still out at large but (laughs) now we can finally have this third movie where from the beginning they're just allowed to be supers and there's nothing holding them back except um there there (laughs) does helen and and to a lesser extent, Bob's, like, desire for them to be safe. <laughs> so that'll be interesting if, if Brad Bird is able to put together another movie. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it, that's for sure. Totally. Uh, and that brings us to last year. Well, Cars 3 came out last year, and as did uh, my number eight, which is Coco. Uh, which also, another Best Animated Feature winner it was pretty much the only, like, out, outstanding animated movie that came out last year. And it's, f- like, the the first one that Pixar made that's, uh, you know... I guess not the first... It's the second movie that Pixar's made, I think, that deals with, like, a completely different culture outside of, you know, America and, and native English speakers um, with Brave taking place in, like scotland uh, and i guess (laughs) pseudo scotland (laughs) uh, and coco actually taking place in like mexico and and dealing with a completely different culture that you know is not necessarily something that these big studios are, are willing to take a risk on but man it it really it's you know i i can't relate to the situations that um miguel uh goes through personally but like strength of pixar's writing team and animation teams and all those are the way that they are able to help me connect to this guy who who is going through completely different situations than i've ever experienced in my own life and the the journey that he has to take to not only kind of embrace who he really is in the face of his family, but also figure out who his family really is, is a fantastic story to tell.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, really embracing that culture was, you know, like you say, a bold move that seems to uh, you know have met. With satisfaction to the folks in that culture, you know, you you heard some minor complaints, but not nearly like you hear with uh, some other films that have <laughs> taken that swing and missed. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's just so immersive that you know, it you understand all these different parts of the the culture, you know, not just what he's trying to accomplish, but you know, where it fits in the culture when you learn about the ofrendas and uh, the. Mm-hmm. Alebrijes, you know, the the monsters in the the land of the dead that, you know, protect their souls and, you know, things like that. You know, it's really quite, uh, I don't don't want to say educational because that almost brings it down. But, you know, inspiring that, you know, you get to, to actually visualize what's such a big part of the culture. And, you know, they do it in such a beautiful way. I mean, the land of the dead, you know, when you're talking about spending so much time on one little fraction of the screen. You know, here when you walk into the land of the dead across that bridge and there's just lights everywhere, but you know, not a blur of lights, like it's an obviously well constructed, bizarrely fashioned city that is just beautiful and yeah, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, there's there's that that one shot of from the bridge entering the land of the dead just there's so much happening between all the people that they're passing and and walking past on the bridge itself. And, you know, a little bit past that, you've got like basically the customs of the land of the dead. And then you kind of like your eyes go up and you see all of these houses and buildings and and lights just everywhere, all these beautiful colors. And like you said, it doesn't blur together. They're all very distinct and easy to distinguish from one to another. And the longer you look at it, you know, the more detail your eyes are picking up and the further back you're able to go. It's it's truly, truly a stunning scene to to, to see.
2: Yeah, then, you know, the, again, kind of mechanics here, but the whole idea of using the, a friend as, uh, you know, the, the shrines with the photos as a way of, uh, you know, staying connected to, The land of the dead. So, you know, they can only travel if their picture is on somebody's aprenda, and, you know, that they they only stay alive as long as they're in the memories. Those are simple but powerful ideas.
0: Yeah. You know, that's, you know, Gael Garcia Bernal's character is, you know, the example of someone whose memory has been forgotten, or not, as we kind of come to find out, not really forgotten, but kind of stamped out of the memories of the family. Uh, and it's, it's really sad to like, see him trying to get across the bridge and not being able to, because he has no one waiting for him or hoping for him to be there. And it, you, you counter, you counterpoint that with, um, Miguel going the other direction, uh, in search of this, this, this guy who he thinks is going to kind of solve all of his problems, uh, you know someone who has been on the forefront of his mind pretty much his entire life ever since he learned to play the guitar, and you know that's the fact that these two characters kind of meet up and and they end up being on this journey together and and kind of kind of you know working against each other in in desire but ultimately with each other in in goals is really interesting
2: yeah, yeah I found um As I was watching this, you know, first time and even second time, like I I could recognize the greatness in this movie. And, you know, part of it is because it's outside of my realm and how I thought, you know, I I wondered if it was just the cultural piece that I wasn't connecting to. And I kind of later figured out it wasn't so much that as just the, I mean, I guess it's still this culture, but the idea of the afterlife is something that I don't personally necessarily respond to. It's not, you know, how I live my life. I'm much more focused on the connections of the present and the people who are around me. And so, um, you know, I, I almost wonder if I would have enjoyed the film a little bit better if it was about him really reconnecting with his family once he got back, you know, not to say the diversion into the land of the dead wasn't great. It was, but so much of it was connecting with dead people. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I guess in that culture, maybe that's still a great thing. Just, you know, it didn't hit with me and that's fine. I'm good with that. I don't have to have everything for me. So.
0: Yeah, I, I echo that a little bit. I think there's, you know, it, there's also there's another element of it that also kind of thinks, you know, how much are you able to conflate the actual representation of of the deceased in the movie with. Uh, Them just simply representing the memories that they leave for the rest of their families and and the people that have lived on past them and you know it's not always really it's not always easy to to make that leap within the film because so much of it does take place in the land of the dead and you kind of become so connected to those actual deceased characters rather than how the living characters remember them Uh, but yeah, I think that is one of the little things that kind of distanced me from maybe putting it a you know in a top five, top four, top three slot for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but uh and this is uh not to kind of glance over it, but the only musical animated film that Pixar has ever made, which, you know, is kind of insane because, you know, you look at Disney and about half of their animated movies are musicals or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the same can't be said for DreamWorks and uh, Illumination. But, you know, Disney, which now owns Pixar, you know, they are known for their musicals and, you know, the Beauty and the Beasts and the Lion Kings and the Cinderellas and, and so forth. So it was, when I fa- learning about that prior to seeing the film, I was like, okay, I don't know if Pixar has this in their toolbox yet but I was really pleasantly surprised by all, all the music that happens throughout the film
2: yeah it's it's really fantastic and memorable and touching and authentic <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's yeah. a challenge to hit on all of those marks throughout the entire film
0: yeah it's you know you you, you think about some of like the best like not best but like the classic musicals like a, a Mary Poppins a sound of music and You know, Coco does something really interesting with um, "Remember Me." How it shows it multiple times throughout the movie, and each time it's it's from a different character's perspective. It's it's with a different intent in mind, and each time doesn't feel like it uh, devalues the other times. It kind of just adds another layer to what that song can represent, which is is really beautiful.
2: Yeah, it's amazing.
0: (sighs) Yeah. Which brings us to number seven. Uh, my number seven is Wally, and Wally is uh, Wally is an interesting one. It's a half silent film and and half uh, very very pointed uh, uh, commentary on the state of, especially particularly the United States. Uh, but, but humankind in general. And I think it, it it manages to exceed very, very well at both sides of, of the movie, but the biggest knock, I guess I would say, against the movie is that I don't think the two parts cohe- are very cohesive with each other, al- always, necessarily. Uh, yeah. But I think just like the opening... I don't know. It's like thirty, forty minutes of just Wally being Wally and and kind of his life on this abandoned wasteland and, and compacting trash in his, in his little belly cube uh, is is so fascinating. And I, it's it's su- really surprising that like they could pull that off for however how long they actually let us sit in that world. And it never gets old for me. It, it never feels like it's dragging because there's no dialogue or or this or that or the other.
2: Yeah, I mean, the character development of a robot is amazing there. And not just, Mm. you know, Wally, but you get his little buddy, the cockroach, uh, Mm -hmm. who I remember in the first showing that I went to when he gets run over, the cockroach gets run over, and audible, sad gasps (sighs) in the crowd of like, oh my gosh, his friend, he died. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously he pops back up and he's okay, but, you know, that you could make somebody an entire audience love a cockroach is fantastic
0: yeah it's yeah like they they're able to ascribe these these feelings to i mean at this point it feels like they can do it with literally anything they want to do it with <laughs> yeah, yeah it does, cockroach toys cars uh, fish
2: yeah it doesn't anything. surprise us anymore but i mean it is astounding especially for where they came from Yeah, this movie I really love, you know, getting back to kind of that environmental theme, just, uh, you know, I I really see this as like a dystopia where the world was destroyed by Walmart, or in this case, by and large,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. kind of takes over the world, consumerism trashes the world, we have to abandon it to find, you know, basically room to breathe and hopefully the world fixes itself, you know, we'll put a few robots down there, it'll be fine. Yeah, right. (laughs) And that, you know, the the people in the end just become unable to perform basic tasks because they've gotten so lazy. And you know, it's just it's taking multiple uh themes and ideas and just taking them to an extreme and turning this into a really great sci-fi dystopia movie.
0: Yeah. It it, it it's you know, you the first time we really encounter these Incredibly obese human beings. You know, it's very silly. They're they're obviously incompetent in almost everything that they are trying to do. Even just like piloting their spaceship, they're they're generally struggling with and having issues do, doing. But like you know, a couple of minutes of of experiencing them and, and seeing them, you know, all of a sudden, like it really does kind of come together, and, and you feel this kind of dread of, like, this really does feel like the direction we're heading, and and that's not... That's a scary, scary direction. And, you know, the movie came out ten years ago, and I I wouldn't ever say that, like, we've made progress the opposite direction. You know, I feel like we're definitely further towards the the future in Wally than we were at that time. So... Clearly we've learned nothing, but, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, the signs are all around us, apparently.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, again, that, you know, just finding beauty out of nothing, you know, when they have that dancing space scene with the fire extinguisher and, (sighs) uh, you know, she's so happy that he's got the plant and, you know, they Mm -hmm. dance around in space, it's just I don't know. It's like comparing it to, you know, fifties dancing movies with like you know, Gene Kelly and you know,
0: fantastic. Yeah. It's it's super evocative and you know, you, you you know, you care so much more about these two robots than you've ever cared about any of the humans in the movie. And you know, you care more about the cockroach really than any of the humans in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's a remarkable feat that they kind of were able to pull off. And
2: then, you know, of course that leads to the robots basically having to teach the humans how to be human.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's that's a that's a weird one. That's a fascinating one. You know, it all kind of comes full circle. Yeah. You know, all, sometime in the future, we'll be able to <laughs> Create an AI that's very like a human, and then sometime in that future, that AI will do the same thing for for us. And mm-hmm. you know, that's yeah. And just, while it,
2: while I'm sure Wally, you know, is building off of kind of our collective consciousness of what AI and these things can be, like just the fact that it still conveys all of this so powerfully with minimal words. With mm-hmm you know expressions on robots and non-human faces and all of that is just really incredible
0: yeah it's it's almost even as if you know this is kind of what would a movie be like if you know if R2D2 wasn't just like a uh, you know a secondary character if he was the lead he was the one you know driving the story forward which isn't to say R2-D2 isn't a pivotal role in Star Wars, as far as the plot is concerned but, you know, if if his role was as important as Luke's as Han's you know, that's kind of what we see with Wally. yeah, absolutely man, I need to watch (laughs) that one again (laughs) definitely Uh, and that brings us to number six, which is our first taste of the Toy Story universe uh, with Toy Story 2. Uh so starting with the the middle entry of the series and this this trilogy uh is is such a tough tough see three films to to pit against each other. You know, I have I had such a tough time, you know, when Toy Story 3 came out to like how does this stack up against the first two because They're all so, in my opinion, like brilliantly made and each one somehow manages to do things that I I never expected and couldn't have imagined I wanted from these characters and from the series and yet totally, totally responded to. And these movies in a similar vein, you know, very different from the approach that The Incredibles and The Incredibles 2 took, which was... 14 years have passed in our lifetime, but no time has passed in the movies. Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, a lot of time passes between them through the films. You know, We get to watch Andy grow up, and if you were at that right age, you, know, you were pretty much Andy's age when each of these movies came out. And that's, that, that is you know, really special for, for the people that are able to feel that way. I, as I kind of said, I'm a little too young, a couple of years off of that mark, but I know, you know, I still kind of, when Toy Story 3 came out, I was really connected to this sort of progression in the series, and I think Toy Story 2 kind of gets overlooked. You know, Toy Story 1 started this whole thing, Toy Story 3, at the time it came out at least, had capped this trilogy, but Toy Story 2 kind of sits in the middle and, you know, it, it it's the third movie that Pixar made, and they had already gone to a sequel, but Toy Story 2 was, was fantastic, you know? Somehow, they did it again, and they took these fantastic characters in Woody and Buzz, and they introduced um, a whole slew of new characters, new toys to interact with them, and uh, you know, they they were able to take, find you know the animation had gone come far enough in four years for the world to expand outside of you know Sid's backyard, <laughs> and that was truly truly astounding. You know, to get to go to um, like a toy store and and to get to see all these new places, uh, it was so so fun in Toy Story two.
2: Yeah. Uh, I- yeah, that, that brings to mind the airport where they're going through the baggage sortation system, which it seems a little mundane to me, but you know, to see that through a toys lens is mm-hmm. kind of crazy. And again, back to what you're saying, the technical side of that, of you know, how did they actually <laughs> design that in computer generated animation where it felt so real and so scary and um yeah. You know, particularly for 1999 when this came out, that's that's quite the accomplishment.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's funny, you know, like this, this toy vantage point that we see in all three of the movies, the tricky part is, you know, we're familiar with all these things. Like we've seen toys, we've seen action figures, we've seen Andy's room in our own bedrooms, we've seen backyards like Sid's, we've seen airport luggage claims, countless times in in everyday life Mm -hmm. and so many of these things are like they're there I've you know I've grabbed my luggage off the luggage claim (laughs) no problem you know like it's not a big deal and then the tricky part for them is to present these things and make them at first seem really familiar you know I recognize this situation I recognize what's happening but then twist it just enough so that we're able to experience it as if we were the toys and and you know yeah, it would be really scary to be in, like, a claw machine, you know, and wondering, you know, either either you're worshipping the claw and you want it to grab you or you're terrified of it. And, like, ugh, you know, like, who would have thought of that? And, and they did, and that's so crazy.
2: Yeah. So I, I also like how you're talking about, you know, how this progresses over time. I find it interesting that you say that Andy you know, may match the age of some of the kids as they were coming up. Um, as I was looking back on these films preparing, I, I recognized like different stages of life in them too. So in the first toy story, you know, it's all about kind of the kid's stage of life of it's all about me. I'm the main toy. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like fighting for your parents' love in a way uh, sure. as a kid. Whereas this one starts to move more towards an adult theme of you know, when it's nostalgia and looking back at the past versus living in the moment. And, you know, that's the whole conflict that Woody goes through is, you know, does he resign himself to the uh, Woody's roundup gang and live in the past? Or does he, you know, hang on for what you know may only be a few more great moments, but really enjoy them at their fullest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, that's a good point there. I, I, it's interesting the way they're able to combine, you know, the progression of the characters in the movie with the audience that they're assuming is going to be watching the movie and the themes that they're conveying to the people that are seeing it and, and making it sort of grow with them. That's that's not an easy thing to do and very easy to, to you know, kind of miss that mark and either go a little too far or, or not quite far enough. And and with Toy Story they're just right on the money. Just just well well positioned and well crafted to get the most out of those experiences.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I really love how they brought, you know, a couple things to life. First, the Woody's roundup, you know, actually showing us cartoons from where this toy came from and yes. why he's, you know, part of the the culture and why he'd be a collectible, uh, you know, along with all the other uh, toys and memorabilia that's around him—that's all pretty great. As well as uh, you know, bringing Emperor Zurg. So you hear about Emperor Zurg all through Toy Story One. You know, as Buzz is on his pseudo mission, but then actually seeing him first brought to life in the video game as Rex right. is playing it and trying to beat him, and then to see that come to real life where you know Rex then has to to face him in real life is you know a pretty great progression from you know, imagined to uh you know, a screen to real life.
0: Yeah. And you know, also kind of going off of that, you know, I would imagine that in the four years between Toy Story One and Two, uh the merchandising of Buzz and Woody and, and Rex and Ham and all of these characters kind of probably I have to imagine took off. You know, I didn't personally have any of those figures but i gotta imagine so many kids did and they went through these scenarios at home in their minds you know like this is what would have happened if buzz <laughs> and zerg had met up in the movie and then we get it and you uh you know you get to see those interactions actually play out and it's almost like i don't know it's almost like seeing A comic book movie like spider-man in theaters you know you've read comics of him for so long and how you get to really see it on the big screen you've played with these toys and now they're coming to life again in front of you and then showing you the actual interactions between buzz and zerg and woody and the rest of the gang it's it's (laughs) fascinating the way that all kind of ties together that way yeah
2: And then, uh, you know, as far as bad guys, you got essentially on the the one side, you got Al from Al's Toy Barn and uh, Stinky Pete, kind of his accomplice in an unknown way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both of them are really fighting on that living in the past side of the argument. And they're the ones who really kind of come out the worst for wear in terms of outcomes. Whereas you also have Emperor Zurg, who is legitimately the bad guy to them in this and you know he gets a a bit of a redemption arc with the other buzz from the toy story and you know they're throwing the ball and their dad and son and just kind of an interesting (laughs) play on that i thought
0: yeah it's it's yeah you know you get these sort of poking fun at like darth vader and 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 luke being father and son in star wars with zerg and buzz or the other buzz you know be, having that father father and son moment and and you know turning things around which which is kind of you know you couldn't ever imagine vader pulling something like this off but with zerg like it just works they they managed to make that work yeah it's 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 great um i guess are you Of a similar mind, would you put Toy Story 2 as your third of the three movies, or is that tough?
2: I think Toy Story 2 and 3 are pretty equal to me. I mean, kind of like what you said about Cars 2 and 3. Just catch me on a different day, talk to me about a different aspect of the movies. I could probably be swayed one way or another.
0: Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So that's Toy Story 2 and uh we'll now move into number the top 5 number 5 which is uh finding nemo uh, we talked about finding dory this is the movie that came out 13 years beforehand and was you know we talked about the the animation of the water in this movie it's it's stunning you know you you i would say that like five years after finding Nemo came out you still hadn't seen water quite as beautiful as they've made it in this movie i remember watching behind the scenes uh footage from like the dvd and and how they were talking about you know they had lined up all the shots that that involved like big ocean move water movement shots and you know they're like all right we picked out a handful that we could really put our time into and and some of the others maybe didn't get as much focus as they could have but you know all the scenes that take place inside the whale oh my goodness <laughs> like that's just it, it still looks amazing today yeah and and through the coral you know and the their home, oh yeah
2: where they've got the anemones and the coral and you know all the different life that's buzzing around those you know just mm-hmm. Unprecedented at the time and still pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, you, you, you don't, I don't know, like I'm not, I'm not super familiar with like the ocean in general. Yeah. I don't, I've never gone scuba diving. I don't really, I've never been on a cruise. I don't really see that side of the world much. So, you know, for someone that's not well-versed in the ocean, they may not fully grasp how many different landscapes really exist underwater, and you know you start the movie out with well you start the movie out with with the um the barracuda fish i think yeah. attacking and, and attacking marlin and the rest of their eggs but after that you know we spend a good 10 15 20 minutes uh, in this little community this nice little town i guess for lack of a better word that they all live in but once you get to the drop off uh, you really get a sense of just how big this ocean is. And I think that moment is such a fantastic sort of jaw dropping moment where you've been in such close proximity to all these characters and, and they've been surrounded by coral. And as you said, anem and anemone, 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 anemone an, an, whatever. Uh, and so, you know, you get this wide open expanse. There's, literally nothing in any direction when you look out across the the drop off and that's that's like a huge like mic drop moment for this movie that that really sets the tone going forward
2: yeah and you know really the the beginning you mentioned you know with the barracuda like that terror was pretty real that mm-hmm. You get knocked out. Your whole family is gone. You have uh, one kid who has managed to survive. I mean, we're talking a kid's movie here. That didn't happen yeah. in kid's movies. No. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it was definitely impactful, especially as a parent, I can say.
0: Yeah, you get that sweet moment where he he resolves to name the last egg Nemo because that's what um, his wife – or probably not wife, but his, his partner – had said, and and you know, then you know, you kind of flash forward, and and Nemo is, you know, Nemo isn't, you know, a hundred percent put together. You know, he's got this kind of dinky little fin that that really ostracizes him in a sense from from other fish his age, and and you know, causes more undue protection from Marlin than he probably you know, he definitely was going to be a very overprotective father, but. Just that added little detail makes it all the more uh, aggressive in his sort of helicopter parenting. <laughs> right. And then, um, you
2: know, just the the dual story. So we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the beginning, but, you know, from there you get the split where, you know, Nemo actually gets taken away, chasing the butt. And, uh, <laughs> yep. and you know, you start to see this, this kind of dual story where they're trying to get back together, which is so powerful because it's, you know, the two-sided relationship where they, you know, you see the love between them that they're trying to enact. And, you know, the two different scenes are great. You get, you know, Dory, obviously, that joins uh, with Marlin and trying to find Nemo. And then you get Nemo in the tank with all those characters. And, you know, in particular, Willem Dafoe, as oh, Gil man. the you know, scheming <laughs> older wisen uh angelfish that's trying to get out. You know, he's just great in that, you know. So the the playoff of the little bit naive Nemo with the you know war veteran type Willem Dafoe is pretty great.
0: Yeah, it even kind of harkens to um the themes that we kind of talked about in UP with like idolizing this this other figure and you know we see maybe not like idolizing from a sort of positive perspective, but like Nemo's early interactions with, um, with Gil are very, you know, respectful and, and kind of afraid of him. And he's this very mysterious fish that, that seems to know everything you could possibly want, want someone you, you look up to, to know. And he, he comes from this position of great authority and, you know, it's, it's, their relationship while they're in the tank that slowly kind of evolves and you get to see the more (laughs) human side of Gil and you know the story behind his scars and you know the way he's able to be this mentor to Nemo is is really a special additional element to him being trapped in the tank that didn't need to be there you know (laughs) it's just kind of organically comes out of that situation and and it's all the better for it
2: yeah and then your other
0: journey you get just
2: such great characters along the way so you get the sharks and then you get the uh whole interaction with crush and yep. uh squirt where you know he gets <laughs> to, to ride the waves and conquer his own fears and his Neurotic uh, helicopter parenting doesn't mesh up so well, you know. It's great mm-hmm. to see that interaction with you know kind of the opposite end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, you know, and and even like, you know, you have the school of fish that that can rearrange themselves into almost anything they need to, and they even know how to like make the Sydney Opera House, which <laughs> is kind of insane that that's feasible, but they do it. Uh, you know, you have. You also have the the trench with the jellyfish above it is also a, just a really kind of terrifying up until it like turns all of a sudden, but terrifying presentation of of this journey and and how difficult it can be to overcome these fears and and that whole sequence is kind of this sort of metaphor for Marlin and how you know he was told to do this one thing go through. Not over, not around, or anything, and he kind of refuses because on the surface it looks like a really scary place to go, mm-hmm. and you know being able to let go of Nemo, being able to let him go off on his own is on the surface very scary for him, but it's something he needs to kind of build work him his way up to being able to accept
1: yeah
0: yeah it's it's i i I don't. Know, I don't know about you. I I saw Finding Nemo when I saw it in theaters. I think it was like a preview before, like not Thursday previews, but like bef- a preview showing before that with my grandparents. And at the time, I wasn't even aware the movie was coming out. I had no knowledge of it. Uh, you know, I I at the time, you know, I'd already seen Monsters Inc. I was a big fan of it. I'd seen the Toy Stories. I'd seen A Bug's Life. And my mom and pop up took me to see Finding Nemo and like it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. You know, it 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 it's it's such a huge step up in animation quality from even just looking back at their previous movie of Monsters Inc., you know, so much has changed in those two years between the films. And it was just kind of the scope of the ocean was so jaw dropping, you know, as a kid. I, I was just floored by it, mm-hmm. completely. Yeah,
2: I mean, and between that and just the the variety of characters that they bring in, basically every type of ocean life, and <laughs> give them a personality that you never knew could have, and definitely mm-hmm. made for a memorable film.
0: Yeah, uh, I like. I constantly think of like uh, the seagulls, oh. the pelican, like <laughs> even extend outside of like fish life. Yeah. And and it's it's so beautifully characterized. You know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Finding Nemo. Moving on, uh, the other side of Incredibles two is The Incredibles, which is my number four. Um, I saw when I went and saw Incredibles two, I watched the uh, IMAX double feature of the two films, and. It had been a few years since I'd seen The Incredibles at that point, and in hindsight, like the, looking at it from my eyes now, as I've come, become adjusted to like the quality of animation now, there's there's a lot of lot of big gaps in animation quality between The Incredibles and Incredibles Two. It's it's taken leaps and and bounds between in between the films, but. What I'm so impressed by, despite that, is how comparing the two and, you know, having seen them like literally back to back, I didn't feel like they were different characters. You know, they didn't animate them so much better in Incredibles 2 or at least depict them any differently than they were in the first movie. You know, you have, you know, and... Which which is even more surprising, given the fact that, like we said, it literally picks up at the end of the first movie into the second one, and it's nearly seamless, you know, which is so so fascinating. And Incredibles came out before the MCU, before, you know, in you know when the big the biggest comic book movie was Spider Man Two, which is crazy to think about that being 15 years ago or so. And uh, it really approached this genre from a position and a direction we'd never seen before. You know, it's, it's a far more meta-commentary on, on superheroes than uh, we've come to, to expect from our, you know, something like a Deadpool, which is also a meta-commentary on, on superheroes, but from a completely different different perspective. Yeah, so you
2: know, I've heard this one called the best superhero movie of all time, and it's it's kind of hard to argue with that. I mean, it hits on so many uh, aspects of great superhero movies mm-hmm. while still commenting on them, and not really falling into some of the traps. I mean, one of my favorite parts is that there really isn't an origin story, so to speak. You know, like you jump into it, and they're already superheroes doing their superhero thing. And there's no need to, you know, have this big buildup. It's just the universe that they are in, as opposed to, you know, Spider-Man, who you have to figure out why he's different than us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you you know, this is a world that, as far as I'm aware, it's not like you get bit by a radioactive spider. You don't fall into a vat of radioactive acid uh, or anything like that. You're just born that way, kind of. Uh, which is, you know, far more analogous to say the X Men than it is to um, Spider Man or or pretty much everyone else in the MCU. And you know, X Men had its own moments of, of addressing and, and social commentary in that sense, but I think The Incredibles is just is just so sort of streamlined in that respect with how easy it is to see these conversations sort of play out within the movie of you know well they can't even let their son play sports because he's incapable of restraining himself at that age and you know he's mm-hmm. infinitely faster than anyone else around him so fast that he's on camera <laughs> moving at the <laughs> speed of you know light or whatever and and they can't tell yeah you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> It just like starting that conversation, and and you know using that as a sort of parable to compare to like, well you know plenty of kids in the real world are unique and have their own special elements to them, yeah. And uh, that that just having that conversation is is so valuable and means so much. Yeah, and I love how
2: you know I, I, it's probably more common today, but I love how they really base the superpowers of each um based on the struggles that they're having and Mm -hmm. they are so you know you get bob who's trying to be strong for his family and you get uh you know helen who's trying to be everything for everyone and stretch a thousand different directions you have violet who's not sure who she is and you know is literally a shrinking violet (laughs) then you got you know dash who thinks he's great and is trying to accomplish so many things, but hasn't quite learned how to do it right yet.
0: Yeah. And, and they just, you can't, you know, as, as the movie moves, progresses and, you know, we get uh, Mr. Incredible and Bob, Bob going out and, and kind of doing his own thing and, and striking away from the family. Uh, It's, it's, you can You can totally sympathize with his his desire to be back in his glory days, and you know it's a feeling I think everybody is going to have at some point in their life. You know, I'm only 26, and I already reminisce about being back in college, <laughs> you know <laughs> So I, I totally relate to that. And yet you contrast that with um, Helen back at home with the kids and, and you know, when they finally are kind of drawn into the action. You know, she's not depicted as a character who misses uh, the good old days necessarily, but man, she just like a fish to water. She's back in it. Everything sort of fits so perfectly for her. You know, flying the plane and protecting her kids, and then you know the whole sequence of her infiltrating Syndromes Lair. You know, it's like she kind of it's like riding a bike. You know, she she's able to pick it up and and pull it off with incredible ease and then you transition down to the kids who've never done this before who've had their powers stifled for their pretty much their entire lives and now they're finally finally able to stretch out and breathe and really test themselves i guess <laughs> test themselves in these life and death situations but <laughs> you know really get a feel for what they're capable of yeah
2: So a few things that stood out to me here that the beauty of the retro futurism and how it seemed to fit so well, you know, not something that we would have thought because you think of superheroes as maybe being futuristic, but to throw them back in time was very cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know the design elements that went with that that kind of naturally led us then to the Edna Mode character. (laughs) Uh, You know the whole infamous cape scene, just hilarious. That was probably my. Uh, You know, the version of the raccoons from the first movie with uh, Edna (laughs) talking about the capes. Uh, Great stuff there. And, uh, you know, really, I I enjoyed the villain in this one and dug the motivations more. You know, are they the best motivations? I don't know, but I could actually understand them and see how a kid who idolized a superhero and got rebuked could, Mm. you know, go off in that bad direction and particularly if they were smart enough could try to figure out how to do some things you know obviously the taking it to the extreme of basically superhero genocide to then lift himself up to be a superhero is you know a, an extreme way to handle that but you know i, I could actually buy it and uh, yeah jason lee just the, the sarcastic tone of his voice was just so perfect for it
0: definitely uh, i agree like syndrome far better villain than either of the two villains that they have in the second movie you know, you get this you know, he actually kind of does get an origin story, you know Mm -hmm. contrary to the family itself you know, as as Buddy in the early moments and, you know, we get to see him later on and, you know, he's not just this I want to take over the world, I want to kill everybody, I just want money and power He's no, he's like this jaded guy who you know, is frustrated that all of these people have all these powers, and and he wanted to work with Mister Incredible. He, you know, he just wanted to be kind of a part of that club, and was told no, and and you know, kind of the door was shut right in his face. And you know, if you can't join him, beat him, and that's pretty much what he does. And you know, that scene of Mister Incredible in on the computer and we see like all the different superheroes and how they matched up against the various versions of his uh, robot or it's pretty harrowing, you know, like those, all those guys, you know, the handful of names that we'd heard bandied about before, like Dyna guy and Gazer beam. We don't really know them. We don't have any sort of context for how powerful they were, but you just slowly see all of them just defeated Almost, you know, one by one by one by one by one.
2: (laughs) But, you know, Uh, then it leads to, you know, the the great power of then the family having to come together to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, put aside their fears and differences and, you know, even the societal pressures to not do anything to then fight this very powerful, you know, legitimately strong. bad guy
0: yeah and you know that's kind of the the funny element of it is you know we get to this final big climactic moment and syndrome isn't really the big bad guy you know <laughs> he's dispatched super easily he he the thing he created immediately turns on him <laughs> and, <laughs> and one you know he's powerless to stop it and it takes the entire family of the incredibles and with Frozone's help to, to finally stop this thing from rampaging through the city, which is if, if any, if any of the critiques I've ever heard about the film uh, sound true land true for me, it's, it's the lack of fully fleshing out like Frozone as a character and, and getting any sort of information on his, his life outside of being a superhero. Uh, you know, it's, obviously the scene with the super suit is, is super, super hilarious and, and beautifully scripted and, and, you know, definitely meme-worthy, but but you know, we don't even see Honey, uh, which is a little upsetting and a little irritating at times, and you know, I can, I, I don't know, I guess if I would have seen her like once in the second movie, I could have ignored all of that, <laughs> but I don't know. It's, it's It felt like in the second movie they kind of just said, well, look, we had this kind of gag in the first movie where she wasn't visibly seen, so we're going to do the same thing in the second, but it didn't strike true the second time the way it did the first movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely wasn't as powerful of a moment,
0: but I don't know that I ever really
2: thought, like, huh, I want to learn more about Frozone. Like, I was kind of okay with him just coming in and being their, you know, not so much sidekick, but their buddy. That helps him fight crime, and <laughs> you get a little bit of character building in in this one when he's reliving the old times with Bob and li- listening to the police scanner. Yeah, um, you know, it feels like I know who he is as a character, and and I don't yeah, know yeah. want to spend yeah. too much time away from the family. I mean, the family is really where it's at. So
0: true, T- totally true. You know, we. You know, he's, he's like this, he's definitely like the unsung hero in both movies. You know, he kind of just shows up when, when things are at, at a, uh, in crisis and, and he's never sort of the, um, the linchpin of, of the situation, but he's always, you know, slowing down the, the ship or the robot. He's, he's stalling with his ice powers. He's helping somebody escape. You know, he's always kind of just in the right place at the right time when they really need him. Yeah. So, I really... I like that. Uh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> One thing I, I remember hearing with regards to kind of the overarching two, fi- the, two films is, you know, we see in the first movie, Syndrome has, like, killed, uh, gen- committed superhero genocide, as you said, like, on so many superheroes. And then in the second movie, you meet... you get this moment where... um Bob Odenkirk is introducing Elastigirl to all these supers who, you know, come out of the woodwork. And there's this, uh, some, I heard somebody describe it as like, well, this is basically the B team because Syndrome killed all of the sort of A-listers in the first movie. And like, it wasn't really a, any, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms when I saw it. But I do kind of think there's some truth to that, you know. Because in the first movie, you know, you hear about the Gazer beams, the Dino guys, you know, Edna's montage of everybody with capes, and those are all people that died. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's the Incredibles and Frozone at the end of the first movie, and then we get introduced to all these kind of second-rate superheroes like the Crusher and um, Reflux and <laughs> Reflux. <laughs> things like that. You know, which is such, it's an interesting way to look at it. I think.
2: Yeah, well, maybe it's just that's the the ones who wanted to come out at that point because the rest had been in hiding or superhero Perhaps. witness protection, right? Uh, right. So maybe these are the ones who hid themselves and weren't known by Syndrome. But
0: yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's interesting. Cool. The yeah. Incredibles. Well, and then, yeah.
2: sorry, one other thing, just oh, a, a sure. couple great characters, like side characters that you get. One is the the boss at the insurance company, oh, yes. uh, voiced by Wallace Sean again, which is always great. And then the babysitter, Kari, who has to deal with Jack-Jack. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's just because I'm conflating Jack-Jack Attack, the short film, but, you yeah, know, you can really empathize with her as the the uh, very competent babysitter who's a little frazzled by the end that's
0: yeah i I always think of um the moment i am pretty sure it's in the jack jack attack short but when Syndrome shows up at the house and she's like what's the s on your shirt stand for and he's like sitter (laughs) (laughs) i thought about bs but that (laughs) you can see why that doesn't play very well It's it's such a good you know, and you know, you've already built up just how exasperated she is by that point, and totally willing to <laughs> give Jack Jack to the first person that comes, that stands in front of her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, The Incredibles uh, is number four, and then uh, we'll move on to number three, which is Toy Story three. Uh, So, you know, we kind of touched on this when we were talking about 2 a little bit, but in Toy Story 3, which, if I remember correctly, was not necessarily marketed as, like, the ending of this trilogy, but just felt like a finality for these characters and and their story and the arcs that they've uh, taken uh, from the beginning, it was really, you know, just like with 2, you know, you're kind of like, well do they really have another great story with these characters to tell you know this many years later is it even worth telling and of course you know if it's not a car sequel they they can really do something pretty special usually and uh toy story 3 is so fascinating because Andy's all grown up now and he's pretty much done with the toys you know he's not playing with them anymore his I'm sure his, the color scheme of his bedspread is, you know, monochromatic and he's basically just t- ready to move on and it's uh college time and he's donating them and and that sends us to this 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 uh is it a like daycare I think?
2: Yeah, a daycare.
0: Yeah, so we end up in this daycare which at first, seems really nice, and you know, all these new toys interact with. Uh, sounds great, and and then the the seeds of of evil sprout <laughs> sprout throughout Alazzo uh, Bear and and his lackeys, and and you know the it's kind of just this, you know this all the toys that we're cus- uh, connected to and the ones that we care about are this. I don't know the best analogy to make, but they're they're kind of fresh meat entering, you know, like a fraternity kind of and they again they go through a pseudo-hazing ritual and, and when they've refuse to comply and sort of follow the orders, it's it things rapidly turn into a, a really bad situation for everybody.
2: Yeah, I mean it's really fascinating that they basically have the jail of the daycare being run by the inmates and yeah. uh, you know like you can kind of imagine Lotso as the uh the kingpin with all the cigarettes or something but in this case it's the double a batteries and yeah yeah running the whole scene with uh yeah with uh Ken of Ken and Barb fame as one of his lackeys is pretty hilarious
0: yeah which also and and just reminded me of um I think it's uh, it's Buzz who he's able to flip a switch on Buzz and shift him into a completely different personality. Yeah, in the Spanish and, you know, mode. Yeah, and, and you know, this isn't even something that was mentioned in either of the first two movies. And unlike you know, I think a lot of in a lot of tr- trilogies or, or just franchises where you introduce something that literally has been there the whole time Later on in the story, it generally feels a little out of place, a little sort of too f- perfect to kind of fit into the story. But, like, you know, as kids who have ever had toys like that, you know, a lot of toys had things similar to that vein mm-hmm. where, you know, not as drastic as buzzes are, but certainly, you know, abil- uh, ways to kind of turn a toy off. And, you know, it, this toy now won't cry every time it is touched or, or adjusted <laughs> or something. And, you know, so you have that kind of connection to make with, with what happens there. Yeah. And it's weird to see Buzz, you know, be any kind of antagonist in the series.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he definitely makes a a, a good change there and, you know, puts the tension in the group, which uh, was definitely needed at that point in the story. Yeah, I mean, kind of going back to where my head was when this movie came out is definitely I did not think it was needed. I kind of feared the third one. I totally thought the story had run. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, back to my analogy before, it feels like this one is now, you know, even a little bit past adulthood, maybe towards retirement, where, yeah. you know, you've got these story, these toys that, you know, they're done with their day job, right? Andy's grown up, they did their job. Now they're choosing this life of do I give up and go sit in a nursing home or do I start a new life doing something else? And so it was really fascinating seeing that type of transition again in a kid's movie, again with toys in the daycare, you know, those kind of layered themes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, You know, we end up at the end of Toy Story 3 with uh, I'm not sure if it's every toy, but the at least the vast majority of the toys we we've grown to connect with, uh, finding a new home. They are re- reborn in this completely new environment that features a completely new kid uh, that is very very different from Andy uh, as he was in the first Toy Story. You know, this is a completely different gendered child who is you know not you know, creating these kind of fantastic adventures, but rather it's more like tea time. As, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, as we saw in in um, the first movie when uh, I, uh, Buzz was kind of drawn into tea time with Sid's sister, you know, he wasn't about that life. <laughs> he was, you know, he was eventually kind of Stockholm syndrome into, into a, uh, you know, being stuck there. But now they've gotten to a point where that is the preferred direction to be taken and that's that's a brilliant way to like develop these characters that are just toys they're just ch- children's playthings, as the movie so eloquently puts it
2: mm-hmm. but again putting them in some terrifying situations so you got the landfill incinerate Ugh. scene which I remember very distinctly having my kids here. And my, let's see, my youngest one would have been three. No, sorry. My older one would have been about three at the time. Mm -hmm. And I just remember going like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have brought into this. If you can have (laughs) nightmares about this down the road. And, uh, you know, just the, the visual of them all holding hands was so memorable. It's
0: heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. But then the flip side of it, my absolute favorite scene, I think of all of Toy Story is actually the beginning of this film where it is the the kind of, uh, I don't know, theatrical version of Andy's play where mm-hmm. you see the great train robbery that has, you know, <laughs> uh, Dr. Evil Porkchop trying to cause mayhem and Rex sprouts out of the ground and the bunch of monkeys come down causing chaos (laughs) and it's actually like following what was in one of the earlier films uh you know what andy was saying as he was playing and they just Mm -hmm. you know re-envisioned it into you know what does this really look like
0: yeah it's it's this brilliant cold open for for the film that uh you know it's it's so you know you you realize as it's happening that You know, this is kind of somebody playing with them and, and, you know, in a kind of Lego movie-esque style. And then as it's playing out, you get the sense that, like, man, the lives that these toys have is very, very different from the way they're played with and the lives that they live in the imagination of Andy. And, you know, in some senses, uh, it's definitely far more cinematic and far more um, dramatic, uh, the way that they're played with, but then um it's it's very superficial as well, you know it's a very straightforward conflict it's just free this person from the clutches of the bad guy uh but then when you transition to the actual film or or, or well the like the the story proper, you know it's far more nuanced, far more layered. you know these are like real characters that have to deal with real issues and and real and conflicts that are far more than just you're bad I'm good it's it's you know like you said you know should I just kind of resign my fate to spending the rest of my life here in this daycare or am I still at a point where I can sort of be reborn as somebody else's new favorite toy and and that's so much more more fascinating from a thematic uh, perspective if not necessarily a cinematic one
2: yeah absolutely
0: Yeah, that's uh, brilliant. I love that opening. It's so good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I saw it and I really struggled after seeing the third movie of where I, as I kind of said, I I struggled like where I placed it relative to the other two. (laughs) And my initial instinct, I kind of put one and three on the same level with two a notch below but i think after you know a little uh, taking a little bit of time away from the movies and giving myself a little bit of breathing room uh from them i i was able to kind of like yeah i do think one really does solidify itself as the the sort of best of this franchise um and you know at toy story 3 just a just one one or two steps below it and two a couple steps below that, but they're all so so closely knit together as a story that it's you know, I mean, just call it one film and make it four hours long <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, I'm perfectly happy to look at it that way too.
2: yeah, definitely
0: yeah, um, Toy Story three. This uh, is a really good one. <laughs> uh, so Toy Story 3 is my number three, which moves us to number two, uh, which is Inside Out. And uh, Inside Out is, you know, not just my second favorite Pixar movie. It's like one of my favorite movies of all time, as like the last couple of these have been. And I actually just watched Inside Out today, as I told you before. Uh, and it's, I, I compared it to, this is an interesting comparison. So, you know, I showed it to my girlfriend who had never seen it before and I compared it to the Lion King and the way I made the comparison was in the Lion King, you know, it starts out very upbeat and then you hit the, the stampede and Mufasa dying and man, that movie hits a real low emotionally speaking. Uh, but then, once that scene is over, and you get the little, you, know, you get a kind of moody Simba for a little bit. But then you get Hakuna Matata, you get Timon and Pumbaa, you you know you get kind of ridiculous Rafiki being wise and uh, insane, and you know you walk across the aging log, and and then it's this conflict between Simba and Scar. The movie doesn't really hit any more big lows after that first mufasa moment for me with inside out you hit that first low um, when when every when with when the move happens and you see riley interacting with this brand new house and and how it's not at all what she thought it was going to be and and every time we try she tries to reconcile with this new situation it just kind of all falls apart and then the the movie doesn't really just pick itself up from that point it it hits you again and it hits you again and it hits you again and you just find to fall deeper and deeper and deeper into this well of 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 sadness <laughs> literally um
2: which which is a good metaphor for where Riley is in her life of that kind of pre teen teen transition yeah of trying to figure out who she is and then getting hit by life over and over <sighs> and over again and eventually making it out the other side.
0: Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, you know, as as emotional as the movie is uh from from the move on, you know, what with you know, the, everything that happens with Bing Bong and uh you know, every time we see Riley in the real world at school or or you know, interacting with her family at dinner and and ultimately deciding to run away, you get so many moments that really hit home. and you know, through Joy's character, we can finally find a purpose in them. You know, it's not just making you feel bad for just to feel bad. it's it's there's a purpose behind it. it's it's a growth. it's it's the ability to kind of learn from from these experiences and and grow and and mature. Uh, And, you know, which is kind of the whole point, you know, it's it's learning to confront these circumstances and situations uh, without trying to pretend like you're okay and and it's it's all fine and dandy in that sense.
2: Yeah. (sighs) So, yeah, it's really great seeing the way that they brought all these complicated uh, growth and you know brain chemistry and psychology and you know the adolescence, the part that you're talking about all together. And mm-hmm. you know it gets a lot of fame for that of being scientifically accurate, at least for what we know. But doing it in a way that's like visually interesting and again intuitive, that you can kind of follow it along. So you see, like the memory dump is this. Giant dumpster of you know things she used to like and know, like Bing Bong sled thing. You have mm-hmm. got you know that abstract thought where they turn into two D and you know things <laughs> like that. You got Dreamland where they're you know filming random dreams and putting characters oh. she knows in it. Uh, you know you've got all these like visualizations of very complex psychological things going on that you know for us as adults there's certainly thrilling but wouldn't take a kid out of anything they just see it as amusing or interesting
0: Hmm. yeah like the, the something as simple as as sadness touching a memory orb and it turning blue is so easy to show visually and yet there's so much more going on in that moment mm-hmm. that that is so difficult to really unpack and and explain you know if you're having that conversation you know like the, the idea of like yeah this really happy memory just became really sad memory and and you know why is that like what you know obviously it's not just some creature in your head touching it and turning it blue it's it's far more complicated than that and credit to this movie for making it for making it easy to connect you know sadness acting while inside riley's head Hmm. and then seeing the results from of riley outside in the real world and how she breaks down in her classroom talking about herself or or how she reacts at dinner when her mom and dad are trying to like get information out of her you know those are very relatable moments for everybody
2: right you know best best parts here you know there's The whole thing inside other people's head The dinner is a great example where you got mom thinking like ah you know why isn't he listening to me and all of dad's uh, emotions are busy watching the hockey game that's that's great Um, yeah and I I thought of you know my own kids in a lot of ways as I think about these different characters which by the way again you know we, we said the voice acting is always great but here they just amped it up like they took the most joyful character you could think of and Amy Poehler and put her up at like an 11. You took Miss black, the most angry, disgruntled (laughs) person on TV, amped him up all the way, so on and so forth through all those. emotions. Mm -hmm. But like, I can actually picture these types of things in my kids. And I, I remember thinking at various points, like, Oh, you know, that's his anger just came out. (laughs) (laughs) How can I put his anger to bed? Get back one of the other emotions. And, uh you know it's interesting to to think of it that way and not just the the emotions but also the islands that they talk about you know where there's their personality traits like uh, riley has the goofball island and the the Mm -hmm. honesty island and hockey island and things like that like you know i can see those things in my own kids as well that you know different aspects of their personalities that are different from each other but um you know, definitely identifiable. That you see them from time to time,
0: right? And the moments in the movie where you're watching, uh, first the the these islands kind of shut down, and you know they go kind of dormant, and you know the the idea relating to that, you know, from from an outside point of view, is you know, there's plenty of times where uh, you know people, you know, even you know, any age really, you know, you have those things that you know if somebody asks if you ask somebody else like how would you describe you know ryan how would you describe jerry and like they could list off you know a handful of different attributes that really come to mind first but you know you're not always all of those things all the time and sometimes you really go away from those really supposedly identifiable characteristics for extended really long length of time and then watching them crumble and that's that's really affecting because it's like no they're not getting turned back on like those are if they ever come back it's like in a completely new vantage point it's from a completely new origin and you know i've you know i've experienced that myself you know in in various points throughout my life where things that were really important to me suddenly didn't feel important to me but then ten years later under a new light, suddenly they matter again and, and they're parts of me again and, you know, that's such such a tough thing to quantify when you're just talking about it and this movie just displays it like it, it you know, like somebody just kind of scribbled it on the back of a napkin and it was like, you know, they had it in their mind this entire time yeah <sighs> Yeah,
2: you know, we, we talked a little bit about the lull between the different films and it felt like this was first one in a long time. And, and, you know, maybe even including Toy Story three where it just headed out on the park on being clever and interesting mm-hmm. in terms of being funny and being emotionally stirring just all at the same time. Yeah. You know, like it, it kind of reminded me of those early Pixar films where it was just awe-inspiring, like, wow, I didn't know they could do that. And they brought it back again for this one.
0: Yeah, you, you know, I think, you know, so there there's five emotions they, they boil things down to, which are, you know, maybe not necessarily the five emotions I would have thought of that <laughs> would represent everybody. Uh, you know, like, I think disgust, feels like a very specific emotion in that sense but you know I and I, I of of the emotions outside of joy and sadness you know most of them don't get as much time in the spotlight <laughs> as the as the main two but uh I was you know having after the first time I saw the movie I was kind of surprised that like when you see inside the heads of people that aren't Riley and so you're looking inside her mom's head and the joy emotion isn't the one running the show it's the sadness emotion and then you look in the dad's head and it's not either of those it's the anger emotion that was like controlling the panel uh you know you but you also get to see that their emotions aren't just like single one dimensional feelings you know they're very very complicated they've matured so much at that point that you know, they're all able to kind of talk to each other and, and reason things out and, and kind of react in the same way in that sense, which is so such a great way to compare the way emotions are in a kid to the way emotions are in an adult. Because, you know, I'm sure, you know, you and I, I'm sure we both get angry at times, happy at times, sad at times, but it's not like that's the only thing you feel, you know, it's all multi and and such.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, again, yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about the monsters' uh, mechanics and figuring that all out. Again, that make all of this just seem intuitive and make complicated ideas like that come across without saying anything. Just showing you, you know, in some cases, two seconds of what's going on in one of their heads with their five emotions, and being able to read that much into it and being accurate and feeling right you know when you think about how that relates to us as as you know adults in this case
0: right right you know you mentioned you know like we see the dinner scene you know we get that other Sort of montage of sequences toward the end of the movie, where you know we go inside the the cashier at the pizza shop. We go inside a couple of other students at the school. We see inside that boy who notices Riley, and like all of the emotions in his head are just (laughs) going insane. That they that there was just not even that she said anything to him, just (laughs) that she was there, which is crazy. Um, You know, we see the inside the head of the dog and the cat, which is also really fun. Uh, Because, like, even that, like, you know, you wouldn't expect to think of a pet having the same sort of inner machinations. And yet they don't have the same uh, sort of style of work working out. But, like, they do kind of fit in that Mm -hmm. way of explaining things. I, I, you know, having rewatching it today you know there's a part of me that that says in in my head that like this is my favorite pixar movie <laughs> you know uh, separate from how good of a movie i think any of these movies are like inside out for for all the tears i've shed watching this movie is one that i could just i could live inside of it because it's it's, it's so i i feel so connected to it which is i i mentioned this kind of before like i was never like an 11 year old girl i was never uprooted from my home and moved as a kid you know i lived in the same house the whole time Mm -hmm. in my grade school years so like i don't have any on the surface connections to riley's character but you know that's what is so impressive of how they're able to get you to connect with that with her character without having those similar attributes and traits yeah
2: so with how uh, strongly you feel about that, what would you think about another movie, you know, sequel, prequel, something?
0: I think, I don't know, like there have been a couple of short films that connect to Inside Out that they've put out, and I <laughs> think those are interesting in their own right. But if they ever were to like revisit this world and, and or tell another story with emotions as sort of part of it, and if Riley was also in the movie, if that was if she was still the main character, I think it would have to do the same thing that Toy Story did and you know if it came out in two years, it would have to be her five years later, you know, put her in another formative period of her life, maybe before she's going to college or something uh so that we can see that sort of transition happening again because I don't know i, I yeah I don't know that it would work other otherwise, yeah well, and then. The- if that's where they are, where Riley would
2: be, put some very different themes that yeah. may not be appropriate for a kids movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the trouble, you know. It's how how far are they able to push that envelope uh, with just a PG rating and just PG themes? Um, I don't know. That's that's the other side of it too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I, I don't see this one happening and. You know, but I've said that before. I thought that with Toy Story, yeah. I you know thought that with Finding Nemo, but you know this, mm-hmm. this one really feels perfect in what it is, and I can't see how they could expand without taking away from this one.
0: Right, definitely. So, yeah, Inside Out, um, definitely uh, one of my favorite movies, and and my second favorite Pixar movie, or. I guess, I guess I did kind of say Inside Out's my favorite, but my second best Pixar movie, technically. Uh, which just leaves number one. And if you're playing along at home, that means it's Toy Story 1. The film that started it all, it, it created this studio as what it is today. Uh, it, it just kind of set the bar insanely high from the get-go. And it's felt like every single Pixar movie after it has been trying to play catch-up. And to varying degrees, they're all marginally successful. Obviously, the animation has come a long, long way uh, since then. But, you know, it's kind of like when you look back at... Uh, you know, you look at some, like, early 2000s CGI effects in live-action movies, and they're, like, real bad, and they don't hold up. But you go back to, like, 80s and 90s, like... um Uh, uh, practical effects and like they still work they still make sense they still feel like you're you know Jurassic Park still feels like you're in a place where dinosaurs exist and Toy Story to its credit despite it being completely animated all computer generated it doesn't feel like you know it it just kind of went through uh, like a, a processor, almost like some animated, like like a norm of the north or, <laughs> or 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 animation of that that ilk. You know, it really does still feel real and and authentic in the way that all of Pixar's movies do. Yeah, and it just it it set everything in motion, really.
2: Yeah, it's it super impressive what they were able to do. I mean, again, thinking. To when this came out, and hearing that the animation was actually good, you know, was a little shocking. And then to mm-hmm. get into the theater and have like a legitimate story with great humor, with great emotional connections between the characters, with you know some adult themes that you know could could bring in as well. Um, you know, it, was, it almost feels like kind of taking us back to Wally for a second, where. They tried to do so much without words. It's almost like they were trying to do so much without the technology because they knew the technology wasn't quite there. So they couldn't really take us out of the house. They couldn't really, you know, give us people that would look too cartoony. Uh, mm-hmm. So what else could they do? And they just polished and perfected this amazing story.
0: Yeah, you know, you're you know, it came out in 1995. Uh, the Disney movie that year was Pocahontas, which, you know, I'm I'm very, a big fan of Pocahontas. I think it's a very good movie. But, you know, that was back when 2D animated movies, you know, they still kind of animated things where, you know, you cut to a new scene and based on how things are animated, you're pretty sure what's going to be interacted with based on, like, how much it pops out from the background almost. Yeah. And Toy Story, like, everything was... It, like everything pops out everything is so real and and yeah. physical looking that it kind of totally supersedes that that notion of of thinking with animated movies uh, it it and and you know disney kind of all of a sudden you know this disney renaissance of you know the little mermaid and beauty and the beast coming out a few years before that it was like Yeah, those are really good movies, and they did some great stuff. You know, the ballroom scene in Beauty the Beast is beautiful, but man, like, nobody had seen anything like Toy Story before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it took the best of animation had to offer at that time and and paired it with some of the best writing uh, that any animated movie had ever seen and you know it did it without being a musical which was really strange for the time period as well uh you know and and uh, you know for my money you know was pretty much the first animated movie relatively speaking that was capable of you know showing adults that you know hey look you know these are more than just for kids you know this there's a lot to gain from these movies that that you know if you give them the right amount of uh, maturity and, and intelligence and quality—they can they can really be for everybody to enjoy.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I'm, I was just thinking, like, when did Shrek come out? Because it had to have been really close to then. So, uh, oh oh, two thousand one. Wow. So yeah, uh, so I think of Shrek as being one of those first like adult movies, but you know, in a different way, it was just really bringing in some crass and. Uh, <laughs> You know, humor that kids wouldn't necessarily pick up on while they had mm-hmm. uh, things that they were watching. So, you know, seeing like these adult emotions and adult uh, storylines being brought up in a kid's movie, you know, even more impressive when you think that's the the next one outside, I would say, of uh, Pixar that did it.
0: Right. That's Yeah. Because, like, the only real alternative to, like, 2D animation was stop motion at that point. You know, you had The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, two years before Toy Story, which, you know, was definitely a different kind of animal to what Disney was making in their 2D studios. But, you know, it was still a musical. It was still, um, you know, trying, you know, it was like 75 minutes long. <laughs> you know, it was really short. And it, it was a very um, um, concentrated movie that way, and you know, and and now we have, you know, from Toy Story, we've we've just kind of grown in that direction of animated movies can be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, <laughs> and you know, animated movies, you know, you can be. You know, an adult, a college student, you know, you don't have to take, have kids to go see an animated movie anymore.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's not necessarily strange, you know, there's still a couple that, you know, like the nut job or something that really don't really offer a lot for older audiences. But, you know, anything that has Pixar's stamp on it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what it's rated, you know, it's everybody's enjoying those movies for the most part.
2: Yeah. Some areas that I, I remember being really edgy at the time, maybe not so much now, but the, the <laughs> whole look into Sid's life. So, first, just having yeah. a bully, but not making him completely the bad guy. And, you know, you can actually start to empathize with him a little bit mm-hmm. and see some of the kind of scary things he did with the Frankenstein toys and the you know, firecracker on uh, Buzz and things like that, that, you know, for a kid's movie again, just, you know, whoa, you know, that's, that's pushing it. Can you show that to kids? I mean, now that doesn't seem weird at all, but, you know, that was definitely part of the conversation back then.
0: Yeah. And, you know, with the interactions between Sid and the toys, you know, it's, that's when Woody kind of turns around and talks to him, (laughs) man, what a, what a decision it was to have that happen. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think it ever happens again in this franchise that they talk and reveal that they're alive. It's, it's really striking that, you know, this, this kids movie, basically that, that, you know, it's fun, you know, it's all of a sudden, you know, the big conflict with Sid happens and, you know, it's just kind of like a rescue mission, but then in that one instant, it gets really dark when Woody's, you know, just like <laughs> staring Sid down and, and really just telling him... I forget the line he says to him, but it's it's really, really affecting and, and poignant and, and pointed. Yeah. But... You mentioned Sid as, like, a bully, and, you know, as far as we see, like, he's never shown bullying another kid in the movie. You know, it's not like he picks on Andy that we're aware of. You know, we don't see a scene with Andy in his bedroom, like, moaning and groaning about how Sid's this jerk, and he doesn't use the toys to, like, kind of get back at Sid. We don't see it from that point of view. We see the toys experiencing that Sid's, like disrespect for for them yeah. is kind of the main antagonistic elements of him yeah which is kind of fascinating yeah that's a fair point don't know that i had thought of it in that way
2: but you know maybe it's just putting the kind of psychopathic tendencies that he was displaying and <laughs> extrapolating out into how he'd behave around other kids but
0: yeah i mean i don't i, I think there's definitely it's fair to assume yeah i mean i guess it's you know, an ass- uh, yeah. when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, but mm-hmm. it definitely feels like that's, you know, you get to kind of see that relationship he has with his sister isn't, you know, the nicest either. Yeah. Uh, and, it's just and,
2: brother, sister, and you know, how much of that is something beyond that.
0: Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, I don't know. i I always thought it would be really interesting to see Sid pop up in a future movie like what happened to him you know he's in toy
2: story three or strongly implied
0: strongly implied yep so Uh, so he's
2: one of the garbage men at the the plane
0: that's right that's right so you see his shirt Um, and
2: you're kind of assuming that that's the same guy
0: yeah so you know i kind of like would love to see maybe they could do like a short film version of it like what, would, what do you even do after a toy talks to you? <laughs> you know, what's the next step? Do you tell anybody about that? <laughs> kind of like well, you know, the Jack-Jack
2: attack, but we get what yeah. happens in that little span after the <laughs> chaos.
0: Right. Like, is that, you know, is he ever, like, sent to talk to, like, a psychologist, psychiatrist? Do they send him off to some facility because his parents think he's just crazy uh, or does he kind of just repress all of that, and how does that ultimately <laughs> reveal itself? It, it's 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 interesting to kind of consider what what would have happened afterwards.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, so Toy Story, my quote unquote best um, Pixar movie as of the moment, uh, you know, and. So you had mentioned, I think, Monsters Inc. as one of your top three yeah. previously. What's how? Where? What are your top Pixar movies? Yeah. So that we've kind of touched on all of them.
2: Typically, I think of it as, and and I don't necessarily think in terms of ratings as often. But when I think of my favorites, I think of Monsters Inc. I think of Incredibles, and I think of Toy Story. After having talked through Inside Out a lot today, you know I can see it being right up there. I love it in a lot of ways, but maybe it's not quite as nostalgic as the other three are for me. Fair. Um, so th- those are the three that I usually put right up at the top. And, you know, it's again, kind of which day you're talking to me and what I'm excited about, I could see any of those being there. But, yeah, you know, I, I definitely have distinct memories, particularly of Monsters, Inc. as just being, you know, somewhat revolutionary for... My mindset is in terms of what animated movies could do um, with story right. in particular.
0: Right. Um, yeah, I, I can't really – I mean, like, you know, I, I kind of hinted at, like, there being tears as I was talking about them. But, you know, so many of them at the top of the list, I would say everything from Toy Story down to WALL-E, I would easily be – swayed to like pick over another of them uh, on on the wrong on the different day Uh, but that leads us so Incredibles 2 came out a couple of weeks ago and uh, looking ahead for Pixar uh, there are tons of movies on their slate we don't know what most of them are the only one as far as like Wikipedia and IMDb seem to be concerned that has a title is Toy Story 4 uh, how do you feel about that <laughs> <laughs>
2: I would say I'm very torn you know it's it's same as toy story three I, I they wrapped toy Story three so beautifully. Why do they need to do another you know where could they possibly go from here? but you know after two successful sequels, if they think they can do it you you kind of gotta give them the the runway,
0: yeah. You know, if if we're starting, if we're springboarding off of the end of three, where they've just you know been acquired by a new child, their new newly toys. Like, I'm not sure where in the in the, um, I guess where where in the evolution and maturity of their new owner, they can find a place to have this story where it, it really feels like the toys themselves have something new to, to overcome and, and deal with. So if we're if the same amount of years are passing between three and four that are passing outside in the real world as they are in the uh, in the world of, for the toys, it's been nine years by the time the movie comes out next year. Uh, so that puts uh, puts her maybe like 12. fifteen years old. Am I? Is that? Uh, she was, was, she, I, she I, was, I,
2: was I, daycare before, so like three or four. So maybe like 12, okay thirteen.
0: So. 12 or 13 okay so a little older than riley is in inside out Mm -hmm. um and i you know that's probably about as old as uh andy was in toy story 2 maybe give or take so yeah i'm not sure what the focus is going to be but like you said you know they they pulled it off with two they pulled it off with three uh you know it's it's I guess we're giving them the benefit of the doubt for now and you know when the first trailer starts to come out and we really get an idea of what this movie's going to be about that'll kind of give us a little bit of a clue as to whether whether this was all worthwhile I guess.
2: Yeah, I was also thinking in terms of that evolution from, you know, childhood to adulthood to retirement where that would put this one and maybe that gets all thrown out when you got the uh <laughs> the younger kid, Bonnie, that they're now with. But, you know, does that, you know, are they facing death now? Or are they, I don't know, what. what's the next stage after retirement to, to go through?
0: Yeah, it might, it, you might be right there, uh, you know, if, if, you know, I guess like the next stage in humans' lifespan uh, after retirement is kind of like deterioration of the body, maybe, you know. Uh, you know, I think that there's a moment where, uh, you know, we've seen Buzz without an arm. We've seen Woody have to be sewn back together in parts. Uh, if that becomes kind of the focal point of the dilemma or, or the um, struggle for the toys to go through, and I don't know, that that could be something there for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, maybe you know, just said, ex- sorry, they got what's the- that.
2: They've got the coming together now, so they they left three where you've got two different groups of toys coming together. So there may be something about that, you know, assertion of dominance and who gets to be the, the boss toy or whatever. Feels a little bit like Toy Story 1 between Woody and Buzz, but might be something along those lines.
0: True, true. Yeah, we might, I don't know, we might see like, I don't know. Maybe they'll throw in more human characters to like interact with the toys. Maybe you know we'll see a second uh, edition of the toys revealing themselves. Even yeah, you know I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they'll do with that, but I think they have options. Uh, I guess it's just a matter of of how well executed they're able to uh, follow through on any of those particular lines. I guess. It'll be interesting. It will
2: one, one way or another.
0: It'll either be yeah. great and praised,
2: or not quite so great and slammed.
0: Yeah, it'll seems like it'll either there's be there's no more the these same days. <laughs> right, you know the furthering of the very well highly praised Toy Story series, or you know I can see headlines of like. You know, it's like Cars four, but in <laughs> Toy Story. Like, or, oh or we'll get the uh,
2: Toy Story Manifesto, a la the Star Wars one that just came out a few days ago.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> something like that, right? Jeez. Well, um, that's all the toy, all the Pixar movies. Uh, we made it. It took us a while, but we we pulled it off, and. Um, you know, we briefly mentioned uh, that there are shorts attached to a lot of these movies, and you know, we could go on another three or four hours just talking about the shorts, uh, but that's <laughs> a little bit beyond our scope for tonight. Yeah, Definitely, goodness. yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and. and Doing this with you, yeah. No, it was
2: great to to get to chat and dive into some really fun movies, and you know, really think about some other ones that maybe I hadn't seen in a little while or uh, <laughs> not quite seen in the same way. So it's almost making me want to go back and do a little bit more Pixar watching.
0: Yeah, it's it's Pixar is definitely you know one of those brands, franchises, genres, if you want to call it any of those that you can't really fault somebody for their top 10 being very different structure from your top 10, because I would say that there's a solid 15 of the 20 movies we talked about that anyone can find as their favorite. Um, you know, a couple of them I would definitely question if your favorites like the good dinosaur, but <laughs> you know, I, I, if it's, if it's up, if it's brave, if it's a bug's life, you know, that's, I get it. You know, I can see where that's coming from at least.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, so before, before we pull this, the plug on this thing, uh, is there anything you want to plug, promote, advertise for? I don't know if you've got any, any side dealings going on nah, nah, worth I'm, mentioning. No,
2: nah, I'm good. Uh...
0: You're. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. Um, not everybody's, on the Twitters or, you know, I, I certainly was very, very late to that party myself. So I, I, totally get that. Um, yeah. Uh, you are the fifth fantasy movie league person I've done this with now. Oh, nice. It's, it's been a really interesting, not journey, but just experience to like, kind of have these lengthy in conversations, with someone I've interacted with quite frequently about literally just box office returns mm-hmm. and, and actually talk to someone about something that's not really really related to that at all. It's it's a nice change from the norm. Yeah, well, that and
2: the, the new Discord discussions and seeing many <laughs> different aspects of people who uh, were, you know, you got a hint of their personality, but definitely not who they were as a person, so...
0: Yeah, yeah, that's you know, it just like I I I mentioned this uh with a couple of other people so far, but you know, the the love and and traction that the discord has gotten already really shows how much interest I think there is for a some sometime in the future potential like meet up scenario, like a con situation. Uh-huh. Uh which which would be really fascinating. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's Potentially a long ways away, uh, you know, or or I don't know. Maybe it's right around the corner. To say,
2: things move fast.
0: Yeah. So, thank you one more time. Yeah, thank <laughs> for, you for doing me. this. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's been great. I loved getting into some of these movies that I haven't really thought about necessarily that much lately. Um, cool. So. Uh, <laughs> It's a little after one in the morning for me it's it's very late uh, and uh, I guess have a good the rest of your night yeah um, and uh hopefully we'll be able to figure something out before lock time tomorrow yeah <laughs> and um, work that out too <laughs> go Emerald City cool. yes Emerald City <laughs> <laughs> uh great well that's it All right for this and uh i'm sure i'll talk to you later all right take care you too bye i hope you enjoyed today's episode i i really had a great time going through all these old pixar movies that i haven't seen in quite some time if you would like to check out other episodes of the show you can find those on circleoffilm.com as well as other statistics and and charts and top 10 lists and what have you if you would like to get in touch with me, maybe tell me what your favorite Pixar movie is. You can find me on Twitter at Circle of Film or shoot me an email, circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you would like to support the show for as little as eight cents an episode, you can do so on patreon.com slash Film. And as always, have a week.
1: So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know she'll never leave me. Even as she
0: fails